0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for checking out the podcast. We greatly appreciate your support. But before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a success story. I wanted to tell you about my friend Carl up in New Boston, Michigan. He listens to our pods every week, and he heard me talking about how I might be able to help him out. So he hit me up over at SaveWithConrad.com. He just closed last month, and he left us a five-star review, and he had this to say. Not only did we save over $100,000 on our mortgage by removing several years off of it, he also saved us a few months of payments and follow up. Conrad and Steve are super helpful. When I had additional questions, you can't go wrong here with save with Conrad. Definitely worth the call to understand what your savings could be. Take Carl's word for it. He saved more than a hundred grand. What have you got to lose? Be like Carl. Go to save right now and find out how much money you can save for free. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And if we can't help you save some cash, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Why not you? Why not now? Go to SaveWithConrad.com and find out how much money you can save for free. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Get a quick quote right now, thank me later and you'll be glad you did. SaveWithConrad.com. thompson and you're listening to 83 weeks with eric bischoff eric what's going on man how are you i am doing
1: well recovering uh still recovering a little bit after the 4th of july but uh, we had a great time and coming to you ha- happy healthy and looking forward to doing this show live atop the glizzy king broadcast studios here in cody wyoming
0: Oh my goodness. Well, listen, did you, did you see the shirt? The glizzy King shirts that came out yesterday? I, I did over at Eric I didn't miss it. I'm in the loop. I can't believe it's a thing. I do think we should have a second version though, because uh, in hip hop glizzy outside of Washington DC is often referred to in uh, a firearm capacity. And I think that, uh, we need some sort of double entendre, not just for the sausage meat, but for the Glock meat. Huh. I'll get to work on that. Well, let's get to get, work. I was going to say, you guys are
1: way more creative when it comes to t-shirts than I am. So let's, let's, let's put some ideas on the table and, and have some fun with it.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to today's episode. This is going to be fun. We're talking about great American bash, 1992. And as a reminder in the archives, we very recently covered 95, 96 and 97. Now, the reason I am excited to cover this one is it is totally different than the other three. So 95, we talked about and took a look at WCW right before nitro got kicked off 96 nitros up and roaring. Now the NWO is not quite fully formed, but the outsiders are here. It's the Genesis of that storyline, at least on pay-per-view. And then of course we took a look at 97 when the NWO is flying high WCW is as high atop the mountain of professional wrestling, at least in the United States and DDP became a bona fide superstar, but 1992, well, this gets way back, even predating your rise to power. You joined famously around great American bash 91. So you're roughly a year into your tenure in WCW working your way up the ranks. I think you would describe your first position as a C string announcer. And this is very much the bill Watts era. And there is a lot of moving and shaking. So you'll be able to be able to maybe give us a little bit of context to what was going on in your life, but maybe not everything that was happening operationally at this point. Would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah. And before we dig too deep into this, um, do you know what the number one hit song was on July 12th, 1992?
0: I don't, but I bet you're going to tell me. Baby Got
1: Back by (laughs) Sir Mix-a-Lot. Oh, my gosh. I love that. That's tremendous. Now, the number one country song was I Saw the Light by Winona. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have to go back and dig that one up because that didn't didn't sound familiar to me at all. But I'm going to go back and check that out. The number one movie was A League of Their Own. With Tom Hanks and Gina Davis, Madonna, and Rosie O'Donnell before she turned abrasive. So yeah, it was, it, and it's actually, it, it, I think it's archived like in the Smithsonian or something. Evidently a whole bunch of people thought A League of Their Own was a really important movie for future generations to be able to see. So there you go. Number one song, Baby Got Back by Sir mix a country song, I Saw the Light. And the number one movie on July 12th. I think it was for two weeks in a row a league of their own with Tom Hanks.
0: I love it. I'm actually liking that little twist that you're adding here for us, giving us some context, for what's going on in the world. Let's talk about the, uh, the moving and shaking behind the scenes of WCW. The observer would report in early June that the great American bash on July 12th was moved as had been rumored for some time from Philadelphia to the Albany, Georgia civic center. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. Meltzer says as reported here earlier, there was a strong possibility city workers in Philadelphia would be going on strike July 1st, at which point it would be almost impossible to move a location for a major pay-per-view event. WCW waited about as long as it could for a different contract settlement, which didn't seem to be forthcoming. There don't seem to be any changes to the card, which is scheduled to be headlined with sting versus Vader for the WCW title. Plus the final three rounds of the NWA world tag team title tournament, you know, Philadelphia, an old stomping ground of WCW going back to the horseman era and, uh, that crowd is arguably one of, if not certainly top three, most passionate, I think you would lump in Chicago, Philadelphia, and perhaps New York, would that be your trifecta of most rowdy wrestling crowds? I think that would be a safe. Safe bet? Yeah, I would. But you're going from, you know, these super passionate, loud, and rowdy Philadelphia fans to this Albany, Georgia, or I think Jesse Ventura, instead of saying Albany, he said Albany uh, <laughs> on this show. But it, it, here in Albany, the crowd, well, they're not nearly as rowdy as Philadelphia. And if you watch this pay per view this week, you know what I'm talking about. Let's talk about some other moving and shaking behind the scenes. Meltzer Wright There have been other changes at WCW Kip fry quit the company on Wednesday, which came as a surprise to anyone Frey reportedly fry, uh, excuse me, reportedly had no idea, uh, that they were literally pulling the rug from underneath him. When it comes to power in the hiring of bill Watts as vice president in charge of wrestling operations, while Kip was given a figurehead position to save face, nobody expected it to last. According to several reports, he had transferred within the Turner organization and we'll work under Jack Petrick in a proposed new division of the Turner empire, which will produce records, films, and Broadway shows. Kip spot and the number and the new number two man in the company will be Jim Ross. I'm not certain whether Ross is officially titled vice president, but he'll be handling the production of all TV shows, marketing merchandising, and become the company liaison with Turner home entertainment, which is in charge of the pay-per-view events. This is pretty remarkable when you think about it. I mean, it is a major shift. I know you're not necessarily calling the shots at this point. What did you, what kind of read did you get on this move that now Watts is in power and he's put his supposed right-hand man, Jim Ross underneath him. And Kip is out of here.
1: What a weird time that was. Keep in mind. I'd only been with the company, as you pointed out for just about 12 months, I was hired by Jim Hurd. Um, I was there for a few months under Jim Hurd when Jim Hurd got let go. And Kip Fry was put in that spot. And I think, you know, now looking back, of course, then at the time, I, I was so far, far removed from the inner workings and the politics and all the moving and shaking. You know, I would I would fly in from Minnesota. I would do my job as best I could, and I would fly home. And, and I really wasn't anywhere near the politics of it all until I was on location. And, of course, then you you hear so much. But going back, you know, looking back at it now, knowing what I know now that I didn't know then, you know, Kip Fry was never intended to be in the position he was in for very long. He, he in, in typical corporate fashion, um, when the decision was made to let go of Jim Hurt, for, and I'm not even sure what the reasons were. To be, to be honest about it, I, I don't know what the internal discussions were. But wh- whatever they were, you know, G- Jim Hurd w- w- had been fired. Uh, Kip Fry was put in there. He, he was an interim. He was a placeholder. He was an attorney. So I'm sure the corporate branch trusted Turner. And, and this is not a shot. I mean, it, it would have made a decent decision given where – WCW was at the time, but they put an entertainment attorney and that's what Kip Fry was in charge of WCW. But that was like, you know, WCW was the place that they would put executives that they didn't really want to fire. (laughs) I mean, it's, it was, it was about as much they were probably hoping he was going to quit on his own because that would have been a cleaner, easier thing to deal with. But they put Kip Fry in there as an interim, uh, acting president, I guess, and until they found somebody to replace him with. So in a short in, in, a, in a short span of 12 months, I was hired by Jim Hurd. He had been fired. Kip Fry was put in place. Now, Kip obviously didn't know that he was a placeholder, and he was only there temporarily until they found a better solution to run WCW. So, of course, Kip came in, and he had all kinds of ideas. He was very um, – he was very progressive, if you will, in in the way he approached the business. I think he realized he didn't know anything about the wrestling business. He didn't try to pretend that he did. I'll give him credit for that. Uh, unlike a lot of people that would have been thrust in that spot. Um, and Kip came in, and, and he tried to change a lot of things. There was had been a lot of frustration under Jim Hurd. There was a lot of internal turmoil, and in the locker room was a kind of a... Uh, the, the morale was very low. Uh, there was a, just a lot of things wrong. And Kip Fry came in rather aggressively, but in a, in a in a positive way, tried to change all that. Kip worked really hard to try to establish a rapport with talent. I remember having a couple, you know, all talent on deck meetings with Kip Fry at, at television tapings. and he really did try, you know as hard as he could. He would often have and Tony Schiavone and, and probably jr. could talk more about this. Um, because they were more involved in it, but you know, Kip Fry had a cabin, uh, a nice log home cabin, uh, about an hour and a half or two hours North of Atlanta. And that was where they would have their booking meetings and their creative meetings. And I think that was Kip's way of trying to create kind of a collegiate team environment, which was not a bad idea given you know, the condition that WCW was in when Kip Fry took over. Well, Kip didn't last long. Once they figured out, okay, let's bring in this wrestling guy, Bill Watts, who they'd heard so much about. And before I knew it, Kip Fry was gone and and now Bill Watts was in charge. So within a span of 12 months, there were three new heads of or three different heads of WCW. So it was a very tumultuous time. And I was, You know, from my perspective, I was just happy to sit on the sidelines, keep my head down, stay out of everybody's business, stay out of the politics and just do my job. But I will say I I didn't like Bill Watts on a personal level, didn't have, you know, didn't try to develop a relationship with him necessarily, but Bill was very – now, Bill didn't have any time for me. I was probably on his list of priorities or things to think about somewhere down towards the bottom. He had bigger fish to fry. And again, I'm not. I didn't take that personally. It just it was what it was. I knew what my role was. I was a third string announcer, batting cleanup on a part time basis. I didn't expect to be embraced and you know welcomed into the inner sanctum of the you know executive committee or the or the creative committee or anything like that. But there was just something about, but he was a bully. He did. He was stubborn. Uh, you know, it's funny because when, when I had heard, I remember I was staying at the Omni hotel when I got the word that Bill Watts was coming in and I didn't know anything about Bill Watts. You know, I, I had zero exposure, interest, understanding, anything of, of Bill's prior history in professional wrestling, but I knew, you know, Jim Ross was very excited about him, Jim, Jim, and likely, you know, justifiably so Jim and Bill Watts had a great relationship. They had a long history. I, I think Jim really respected Bill, but I didn't know him. And I thought, well, man, I better get a lay of the land. So I called Vern Gagne and I said, Vern, what's up with this Bill Watts guy? I mean, what do I need to know? Mm. And, and because Vern was still, you know, I looked at him as kind of a, a, a mentor in a way. And Vern said, look, he's tough, but he's he's a good, solid guy. He knows the wrestling business. Just, you know, keep your head low and, and just know he's a very, very tough guy to work for, but a good guy to work for is basically what Vern said. So I, you know, I I did my best. I, I tried to keep a positive attitude going in, but it only took me about a month or two to go. Ugh. He may he may be, you know, he he may be experienced in the wrestling business and may have achieved a lot, but he's a, not someone that I enjoy, you know, working for, and and I don't see a future with. And by this time, a Great American Bash, I was already looking for my exit strategy. I was I was heading to Hollywood.
0: Really. Yeah.
1: Yep, just, I had develop, developed a television show, and I have talked about this before, and was, you know, having conversations with exec, Fox executives in, in L.A., and, you know, I, I, I had made up my mind after working for Bill for just a, a short period of time that I didn't I didn't see a future for me personally in WCW, and I saw a lot of opportunity outside of WCW in the world of entertainment, and I was getting ready to make my move.
0: You know, these days there's a lot going on and that's likely impacting your sleep. Let Ebb sleep help you out. That daily stress can impact your ability to relax and wind down when it's time for bed. But Ebb sleep created the cool drift sleep system to help you counteract life stresses. You see the minds normal way of dealing with stress and challenges is to be on guard, more vigilant, and that's the inverse of what's needed for a restful night of sleep. The Ebb Cool Drift Sleep System provides a cooling, calming sensation to the forehead designed to counteract the way the mind and body react to stressful situations. The Ebb Cool Drift is the first and only drug-free sleep solution to use continuous cooling that reduces metabolic activity in the frontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain, which quiets the feeling of a racing mind and allows you to fall asleep faster and sleep better. Ebb Cool Drift is a compact and gentle wearable solution that helps reduce those racing thoughts to allow people who are suffering from sleeplessness to drift more comfortably into a deeper, more restorative sleep. And hey, just imagine what you can take on the morning after a restful night of restorative sleep. We've all heard our whole life how important a good night's sleep is, but now maybe more than ever. Whether you're seeking a solution to a long-term battle with sleeplessness or looking for small improvements to operate at your peak, it's time to try the ebb cool drift sleep system. We got one here at the house. We absolutely love it. Especially if it's been a particularly stressful day and you've just got a lot on your mind and you know, it's going to be hard to get to sleep. I don't know about you, but I don't want to load up on a bunch of sleep aid medication, it's not really my jam, but if I can do this. This feels like a much safer alternative. And by the way, it really works. Sleep is critical and Ebb believes the solution should be natural with no harsh next day side effects. Real tight on that. Whether you're seeking a solution to a long-term battle with that sleeplessness, or like I said, just looking for small improvements to operate at your peak, it really is time to try this Ebb cool drift sleep system. And just for our listeners, you can save $25 off your order by going to try forward slash 83 weeks and use our promo code 83 weeks at checkout. One more time. That's $25 off your order and you get to try it risk free for 60 nights. That's T R Y E B -b forward slash 83 weeks, try ebb.com forward slash 83 weeks and use promo code 83 weeks to save $25 today. By the way, I do want to mention that this is backed by science. Brain imaging studies followed up to 3800 nights of clinical studies by renowned sleep researchers, and it revealed a revolutionary new way to sleep. I already knew that because I've tried it and you have to, too. We should mention they have precision cool technology here. What does that mean exactly? Well, there's a proprietary cooling comfort band and it's going to contain some fluid that is cooled and maintained at the ideal temperature range over the course of the night. This is going to help gently bring your forehead to the perfect temperature and maintain it to help you fall into sleep and stay there. It's also been clinically tested. Four out of five users reported getting to sleep faster. And of course, eight out of 10 users reported improving their overall sleep quality. In fact, seven out of 10 users reported feeling more alert the next morning. Folks who have been using this have said that, well, 44% of them said that they reduced their time to fall asleep. But 90% said it improved the quality of their sleep. And you can try it risk-free for 60 nights to confirm that this is the solution you've been looking for, but it's legit, man. I can't recommend it enough, especially because it's natural, 100% natural. Most traditional sleep aids just shut down your mind and body completely. Ebb is going to work with your brain's natural rhythms to help you sleep the way your body was meant to. Go try it right now try ebb.com forward slash 83 weeks and be sure to use our promo code 83 weeks at checkout i can't wait for us to talk about that another time let's let's keep it on the track about wcw for now uh jr in this era has a radio show that airs on sunday nights on a a monster station out of atlanta wsb and and it is a hundred thousand watt which is a big signal uh you could hear it for Miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. Um, and, and Meltzer would write of this. Most of the callers and questions are revolved around the hiring of Watts with probably few, if any listeners realizing the promotion Ross himself had just received Ross talked about the center stage tapings on June 1st and 2nd and said that people won't be waiting hours to see wrestling matches in reference to the tapings of the new Saturday night TBS show. That was Kip's brainchild which saw few matches taped at each taping and long delays for the fans attending live. As all the segments were taped, the Saturday show will almost surely have another major overhaul, which will become evident on TV in three more weeks. Ross likened Bill Watts to Vince Lombardi, the late and legendary pro football coach, and his philosophy isn't that winning is everything, but that winning is the only thing. And he said that a lot of the current wrestlers may be going through culture shock because of the heavy discipline that is going to be imposed he doesn't know how many of the current crew will survive Ross surmised that there could be as great as 30 to 40% turnover in the talent before things are said and done. We're going to talk a lot about that, but what'd you think about the, the shift in the Saturday night show? Of course, one of Kip's brainchilds was let's make it more of a studio style show and well, Bill wants, wants more old school wrestling action. You've tried a little bit of both in your time and in, in, in the wrestling space, did you have a strong read one way or another as to what was the right fit for WCW?
1: Well, in my opinion, again, I just, you know, uh, my opinion wasn't worth too much at that time because I just wasn't looking at the product from a growth point of view or, or a production point of view as much. I was, again, I was, I stayed in my lane. I was talent, but I could, I could see, or at least I felt in my opinion that, you know, Kip's attempt to kind of bring WCW up to a new standard in terms of entertainment values and production values, he, he wasn't wrong about that because that's that, in my opinion, is what WCW clearly needed. Uh, now, the way he went about it was questionable, but I'm sure he had limited budgets and didn't have a lot of great input, and he was an entertainment attorney. He wasn't, you know, an entertainment executive, in the sense uh, of of having any real creative background or 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 anything like that, but he he was an attorney. He spent all of his time in a book, so his attempts were experiments at best, and they, they they didn't work quite obviously. But we went from WCW went from one extreme in Kip Fry to an absolutely opposite extreme in Bill Watts, and I think one of the things the common thread throughout the show and especially in this pay-per-view. And I'm going to, I'm going to say this right here. I really enjoyed going back and watching this pay-per-view for a lot of reasons, but it was so clear here to see, it was so easy here to see Bill Watts's vision. And part of that vision was to, and I, uh, again, I don't want this to sound as as much of a criticism as it's going to, but Bill's strategy was to go back to the seventies. Right. Maybe the eighties and make wrestling what it used to be. And I think anytime you start out trying to grow a brand and recreate something, um, by going back to anything is really, really challenging. And, and in this case, it was so obvious. And I don't want to get into all of it here because we can really talk about it in some of the matches that we're about to see. But, you know, one example, and, if, and I really encourage people to go to the WWE Network and take a look at this pay-per-view because it really does give you a pretty clear picture of, of – what Bill Watts and yes. to, to a degree, Jim Ross, if he was the head of production, he's got his fingers all over this, fingerprints all over this too. But one example, if you will, is you know WCW in 1992 was having a really tough time drawing a crowd the big pay-per-views. They had been papering their pay-per-views for a couple of years because there was really no demand for the live product whatsoever. So they'd burned a lot of their markets that they, they performed so well in. They burned them out by, number one, going back too often. Number two, putting on shows that were less than, I guess, fans felt that their their, their money should have provided. They, they, they didn't get their money's worth. And it was it was just boring. And as a result, there were hardly any crowds. Well, Bill Watts is, and I guess, and, and I'm not blaming anybody for this, but whosever decision it was, uh, let's let's do that. ever decision it was to turn the lights down in the venue and only be able to see the first two or three rows of ringside during the course of the match. Now, they would bring the lights up in between matches, which I understand. I understand the logic behind it. And the logic is on its surface, relatively sound when you realize or when you're dealing with the fact that you just can't draw a decent house. And when you do, they're not very into what you're presenting. That was clearly the case here. And you see it, you know, especially when we get to the main event, it is so painfully obvious for a lot of reasons that the crowd just was not into this show with one or two exceptions. And there were some really powerful exceptions, one in particular that we'll talk about. But the whole idea was to kind of go back to, In a way, TV studio, go back to the 70s, small crowd, take the lights down, focus only on the action in the ring, keep the action in the ring, very athletic based everything, you know, and Jim, Jim, you know, Jim's nature is to kind of weave football references, you know, Mm -hmm. into his commentary in a way to add credibility to the product. And obviously he's done a great job. Jim has done a great job doing that over the decades. But here it's even more obvious because that was also Bill Watts' approach. Is the wrestling should be wrestling like it was in the 70s, probably even in the 60s. And it is so obvious. And some of the 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 frustration with the talent was, and and Bill was very heavy-handed. He was a very demanding guy. And you know, he basically took a lot of the exciting kind of aerial, the big move, the moves that got the big pops, the spots that got the pops. He took that out of the arsenal of a lot of the talent and mandated that the action in the ring, it's ground and pound. It's that old, you know, it's chain wrestling. It's that hard hitting, you know, big man kind of stuff that if you, if you go back and look at this pay-per-view and then you look at a pay-per-view today from anybody, and compare the contrast in wrestling styles, it's just amazingly obvious the, the, the strategy, the vision, if you will, that Bill Watts had and that he thought would turn WCW around. Unfortunately, it did the exact opposite in, in a lot of different ways. So you, yeah, you had the frustration of Bill Watts's kind of abrasive, you know, dominant personality, very stubborn guy, very loud guy. Like to, you know, he was a big dude, right? And he liked to, you know, communicate to the talent that he wasn't afraid of any one of them, which I found really weird. You know, that, that, I thought that was a really strange way to try to manage challenges to impress them how tough, you know, Bill Watts was, you know, it just, it was weird. And I know it created a lot of issues. So it was number one, he had a, this kind of domineering abrasive, you know, want to be tough guy he used to be a tough guy and was trying to pretend, pretend he still was, and a lot of the talent, you know, Scott Steiner in particular, just, I, I was, every time I showed up at TV, I was expecting Scott Steiner to, to, to rip Bill Watts's head off. There was no love lost between those two guys at all. Um, which yeah, was Scott Steiner. Who knows? It's not that unusual, right? But yeah, there was a lot of, there was a lot of people who were very unhappy. Again, abrasive, dominating, kind of a bully personality, taking a lot of the, the tools, the, the, the move sets or spots that a lot of guys like Flying Brian Pillman, you know, were really, really great at taking those things away from them, you know, taking the ring mats away from, you know, ringside so that you had nothing but a concrete floor. Now, the idea there, I guess on paper, if you were trying to go back, you know, 10 or 20 years and try to condition the fans so that if somebody actually did hit the floor, that it hurt. I understand why he did it, but I don't understand why he thought it was a good idea. You know, that was another thing that limited what the talent in the ring could actually do. And, and Jim's whole approach was confine the action into the ring, chain wrestling, go back to the seventies. And it, it made for some good matches because some guys were pretty decent at that. It also made for some incredibly boring matches. And in the case of this pay-per-view, particularly because every one of them was the same with the exception of Sting and Vader that we'll talk about in a minute. That, that was a little, that was a, a much better match and it felt much different, but th- there were so many reasons why I think this pay-per-view was flat. Um, it had nothing to do with the talent involved, but number one, having a tag team tournament tournaments never draw. They just don't. Now I think a tournament as a platform to build and create and continue stories between talents. So if the focus is still on the story and, and, and the relationships between the talent within the context of a tag team tournament or any kind of a tournament, I, I, I could sign off on that if, if I was sitting at a table somewhere, but for anybody to think a tournament in and of itself without the character arcs or the story arcs woven very well into that tournament format. You're 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 kidding yourself. You're it'll be okay, it'll do decent, but you're not gonna nothing special is going to come out of that. And we saw that here.
0: One of my favorite things about eighty three weeks is talking about the business side of pro wrestling. And of course, when we say the business side, what we're really talking about is money. And we're comparing. How business was before versus how business was at that very moment. And maybe what business could be like in the future. Well, here's something that we can change in your business. It's been reported that Americans are overpaying on car insurance by over $21 billion. But searching for a better deal can take hours and typically results in a barrage of unwanted spam calls. Until now, thanks to thezebra.com. The zebra.com is the nation's leading car insurance comparison site, because it's the only place you can compare quotes side by side from over hundred providers and choose the best for you in 90 seconds or less. Plus they'll never sell your information to the spammers. So you won't get all those unwanted calls or emails. You just answer a few questions on a simple fast form and they find you the best rates and coverage in your state. TechCrunch even called the zebra, the kayak for auto insurance. Now the best part is this is completely free. That's right, completely free, and you save up to $670 a year when you use thezebra.com. With states reopening and people back on the road, the Zebra is committed to making sure you're covered at the lowest price possible. How much can you save on car and home insurance? Go today and start saving at thezebra.com/83weeks. That's thezebra.com/83weeks. I'm going to spell that for you. It's T H E Z E B R a.com slash 83 weeks. And we thank the zebra.com for sponsoring today's podcast. There's so much to talk about on this show. And I guess I need to just, you know, come clean. I, I want to like this show and I want to say that I'm a huge fan of this show, but I am just not. And it's one of those deals where there's so many great wrestlers in ring performers on here, especially guys like docking and, and Gordy. I think the internet smart fan, like the, the, the smart wrestling fans really love this type of wrestling and love this presentation and love this show. And I found myself feeling like a bad fan. Cause I just wasn't into it. And I, I can't really put my finger on what it is. I do think Maybe some of it is the the pay-per-view concept. Maybe I just don't think that a pay-per-view, you know, with a tournament really makes sense. I I want there to be stakes and grudges that, you know, you and I have talked about over the course of this show for the past few years. And I don't know. I just came away from it. And I, I, it's funny that we both had the same takeaway from the main event. And I know we're getting things out of order on our show, but the crowd is just fucking dead. There's no pop. There's no reaction. It's like, well, I guess that's it. We can go home and and we'll talk about that. But this was bill Watts style of wrestling. And Jr. was certainly co-signing it. it's what he was sort of brought up in the business with. And I think the word maybe that you were looking for earlier is bill Watts wanted to rule by intimidation, you know, rather than, than try to inspire his crew. He wanted to wag his finger and y'all work for me. And this is how life's going to be. And, He was a tall guy with a big booming voice and he thought he could, I don't know, intimidate some of these superior athletes. It's just a weird dynamic and go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say it was very weird. It was very uncomfortable. You know, and the one thing that I should throw in here too, and again, the timeline because I wasn't really involved in it directly, but certainly heard about it as a fly on the wall. You know, another big thing that was going on at the time was that Bill Watts's, you know, his number one goal is to come in and cut everybody's salaries. Well, if you're if you're the new guy in charge of a company, and everybody knows you're coming in, and the first thing you uh, on your list of things to accomplish is to cut every cut everybody's salaries or contracts and eliminate as many of them as you can. (laughs) I mean, guess what, man? You're starting out with a whole lot of anxiety, resentment, and resistance. And that's, again, what Bill did.
0: There's just so much going on here. Let's try to keep this moving a little bit. We should mention, um, oh, man, there's a lot going on. Bill Watts, this is directly from the observer, Bill Watts. First TV where he'll be in charge will be the June 1st and June 2nd shows at center stage, expect him to make a major speech announcing various changes on the first show that show airs on TBS on June 20th. Don't expect any real changes in direction until July at the earliest. However, Watts said his first priorities are to build back the television ratings because you can't get viewers back to the arenas unless they first watch the television concentrate in particular on rebuilding the attendance at the Omni and put together a product in which the credibility and believability holds up as a total contrast to the WWF Watts did also say that the anti-steroid doctrine and eventual testing came from TBS itself. So the policy won't be changing with Kip out of the picture from a serious standpoint, there will be a day of reckoning with certain wrestlers and we all know who they are. Uh, they've all been told point blank. They either have to get off the juice or find a new place to go. And since some of those guys are in line for the biggest pushes, well, it's going to be interesting. So we'll talk about the steroid thing in a moment, but first I I really pick out of this write-up from Dave, something that stands out. That is something you sort of beat the drum on here on the 83 weeks. He wants to have the credibility and believability hold up as a total contrast to the WWF and you have famously said on this show, you've got to be better than, or you'll be perceived as less than unless you're different than, so he's trying to be totally different from the WWF, which in theory is a good thing, but perhaps he took it too far. What's your take on that? And then we'll talk about the steroid issue or whatever it was. That's a really good point. Conrad really good point and i and in watching this
1: pay-per-view and now again i'm you know so far removed from it in in different ways and looking back at this is kind of like watching the evolution of man, you know, instead of the evolution of wrestling, looking at it as the evolution of man. So we went from the, you know, kind of the Cro-Magnum kind of evolution of mankind. And then eventually ended up as we're walking and talking here uh, on the earth today. And I think this wrestling, this particular pay-per-view is a good representation of how wrestling has evolved. And I remember watching, you know, I was about halfway through the show this morning and I'm thinking to myself, Taking my opinion of Bill Watts and my, you know, all of that other shit aside, I understand what Bill was doing here. And there's a lot of what he was, I think, he was trying to do. Jim could speak to it more than I could, obviously, because Jim was directly involved in it. There's there's some things that I really agree with Bill's strategy here, if I understand it or see it correctly. I, I like the idea, because some of these matches, especially the opening match that we'll talk about in a few minutes – I love. I per- personally, I love more of the, I'm going to call it old school style of wrestling, you know, where the action was in the ring and yeah. it was chain wrestling and it was great psychology in the ring and the story of the match unfolded in the ring. I love that style of wrestling and we don't see that a lot anymore. What we see today is such a t- amazing contrast to this particular pay-per-view where it's all athleticism. Today's product is almost all athleticism with very, very few exceptions and very little storytelling in the ring. Um, Whereas this show, there was a ton of story storytelling in the ring. Some of it better than others, obviously. But that's what this was, and I think if 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 we could go back, if you know, go back in time and imagine a different situation where someone could have sat down with Bill and said, "Okay, Bill, I love your idea. Let's," let, and this is oftentimes how you <laughs> you you convince somebody that their idea is actually your idea. But say, Bill, that's a fantastic idea. But how about if we balance that a little bit? Let's find a way to create some some balance in the show and contrast in the show so that not everything looks and feels the same. And the only thing is different, particularly in the show, because there was zero storytelling in the show other than the action in the ring. But there was no backstory. There was no stakes. There was, well, there were stakes because there were titles involved, but there were no personal issues between the talent. There were very few heels and baby faces, at least that you could tell in the ring, which is another reason why the crowd was just lethargic through the majority of this pay-per-view. Now what happened, and again, I don't want to jump ahead, but because of the show was so boring After the opening match or two and the fans got settled in and they started basically seeing the same story over and over again with different people in the ring um, all the way up until the Sting Vader match. And I don't want to jump ahead because that was that to me was so much fun to talk about, yeah, or or will be. But everything leading up to that was so boring. By the time they got to Sting and Vader, because it was a contrast, and there was a story, there was a backstory, there was stakes that the crowd went absolutely nuts for that match, even though it wasn't the main event. And and then immediately died down for the main event and almost fell asleep. I mean, there was actually a guy sitting at ringside, hard ca- facing the hard camera, dead square in the middle of, of, of the first row at ringside with his arms folded across his chest, and there were people sitting next to him on both sides with their hands folded like they were waiting for a bus. And I do think that if Jim, or excuse me, if Bill would have balanced his strategy with a little bit more diversity in terms of what was being presented and not go so extreme in terms of going back to the 60s and the 70s it might have had it might have had a chance because you you know it, it's we've talked about this before conrad bill i think he had a perfect uh, opportunity and i think this was his motivation again jim could speak more to this but by establishing the rules for example in this pay-per-view you know this was an nwa tag tournament you know pay-per-view tag team tournament pay-per-view so they allowed certain moves that were legal in the NWA, but were illegal in WCW. Yeah. Set set aside the fact that that's kind of confusing to, to passive viewers. And unless you're like that, you know, 2% of the viewing audience is really, really into this stuff. Just listening to that explanation at the head of the show was really tough. (laughs) It was, you know, I I had to listen to it twice to figure out what they were trying to say. Um, So there was some, some strategy here that I think I could have gotten on board with if the 1996 Eric would have been in sitting in the 1992 meeting with Jim and Bill, but I would have advocated for a little more diversity so that not everything felt the same.
0: It's, uh, you know, the, the, the contrast to the WWF that we started the, this little dialogue about, you know, the, the realistic WCW presentation Here's what we're talking about. The other channel has the Brooklyn brawler, the Birdman, Coco Beware, the Model, Rick Martell, Repo Man, the Ultimate Warrior, the Million Dollar Man, uh, Mr. Perfect, the Bushwhackers, Typhoon, Earthquake, Cato, The Undertaker, Skinner, The Berserker, IRS, Nails. We could go on and on. The point is it's a very cartoonish presentation. So to to come combat, combat that with something that is not less than and certainly can't be better than with that cast of characters, it's got to be different than. And and I can get behind that. But the other little tidbit here that I wanted to touch on is there's going to be a steroid situation now in WCW whereas maybe beforehand in the Crockett era that wasn't something that anybody was concerned about, but because Vince McMahon has his own Uh, issues with that thanks to the zahorian trial and all that that's going to be coming that whole investigation it has a trickle-down effect to wcw where wcw now doesn't want to get any of vince mcmahon's stink on them right
1: well yeah he was trying to create some daylight you know between between WCW and, and WWF. But before, you know, one, one other thing, cause you've hit on this a couple of times and, and rightfully so about being, you know, different than it's, you're either going to be better than different than or less than I've said that a million times, but you being different also requires that you're a little bit unique. Yes. And, and you're doing something that had not been done before. You're, you're presenting something new There was nothing new about going back to 1970. There was nothing new about, you know, completely taking the crowd out of the action by putting them in the dark. And I mean, and again, this is why it's so much fun going back and looking at these shows, because look at look at the, you know, the challenge that everybody's facing today. How do you produce any live event, I don't care if it's NASCAR or tennis or whatever it is in front of no crowd because the crowd is such an important part of the show. And, and I I hate to keep hearing myself say this, but that is a drum that I started beating in 1992. That was a drum. That was the first thing that I, once I did get a little bit of control and and had uh, control over the television product, my number one, priority was to find a way to bring the crowd into the show and to make the crowd a better looking part of the show. Which is a hundred percent contrast from what Bill Watts had been doing, and and by the way, not an original idea because the WWF had been doing it successfully. You know, you 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 had to be completely brain dead not to recognize that. But yeah, you've got to be different then, but you've got to be different then in a new and unique way. And and Bill Watson, Vergania, I think Bill Watts, I'm sure Vern, I didn't ever talk to Vern about this, but I'm sure Vern was cheering Bill on because they were very similar. Bill Watson and, and Vergania had a lot of a lot of similarities in terms of the way they perceived wrestling. And I think I can only imagine Vern probably tuned in and watched the first couple episodes, you know, under Bill Watts and went great. Somebody's finally going to get in there and do it right. But doing it right. Isn't going backwards for 10 years. You know, it would be like, you know, somebody coming in and, and, and trying to recreate early UFC well i ain't gonna work it worked the first time because it was new and it was different but going back and producing fights that were not being critical of any of the people that were doing it but some of those fights were slot they were just tough man contests the early ufc fights compared to what they are today completely different product but if someone were to come along today and said i'm going to compete with ufc by going back to what you know mixed martial arts was in in, in the early 90s you'd fall flat on your face. And, and, and that's what we're, you know, that's what we eventually saw with Bill Watts. In addition to other issues,
0: there's no better time to say, I love you. And the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say, I hate Steven And you've heard us rave about his famous roses, but Steven singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades, whether you have someone or something to celebrate Steven's there for you, ready to take the next step. Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection that is no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry. Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but recently he's kicked everything up a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online, too, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day, backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home. It's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com yeah, unfortunately, wrestling, you know, is a little bit like um, well, I guess it's unlike you know, if you listen to oldies music, like if if you if you're chugging along on some drive and you hear this old song from you know thirty, forty years ago, it might be perfect. but it's not like you want to listen to that whole album every single day. I mean, nostalgia in small doses is what has historically worked in wrestling. And this does feel like, the de evolution of wrestling, a little bit with some of these rules that are being imposed, and we'll talk about that. But first, let's talk about a fun little skit that makes TV that you're involved in that I don't think we've ever talked about. I discovered it really for the first time, probably 18 months ago, and I loved it. Meltzer would write They aired a vignette with Eric Bischoff in the Freebird offices that was tremendously entertaining, but also lacked any credibility. Bischoff was at his all-time best here, particularly when the, boun- the bouncers were trying to throw him out of the office because they had no idea who he was. The next best part was Precious saying that the birds were busy, only to find them in the conference room making prank calls. The skit was to establish that Precious is the one who is really running all of the Freebirds business. This had to be a blast to shoot. I know once upon a time when you're... In a position of power, maybe you didn't see any money in the Freebird gimmick, but once you're on screen getting to ham it up with Garvin and Hayes, those guys, they had to be fun to shoot with. It
1: was a blast. It really was. And it's, first of all, there was copious amounts of all kinds of shit going on <laughs> during, <laughs> <laughs> during the production of that. And, I did have so much fun. I loved working with Michael Hayes and what's how this has all come around. Even as recently as last October, um, I was in Las Vegas producing what was going to be having had produced what was going to be my last SmackDown, right? We were in Las Vegas and I got done not going to go into a long story here, but I ended up walking back to my hotel, which was quite a ways, but I wanted to get out of the building. There were no cars available. Vegas was crazy that night. I had been waiting for my Uber and it never showed up or whatever. So I just said, screw it. I'm going to walk back to the hotel. So I had about a, I don't know, whatever. Half hour walk back to my hotel, got, got to my hotel and decided, you know, it's pretty early. I'm going to go over to, I'm going to find something to eat. And I got a text from Bruce saying, hey, I'm with Michael Hayes. Come on over to, they were in some restaurant over at the MGM Grand. So I walked over to the MGM Grand and I met up with with Bruce and Michael Hayes. Now, anybody that has paid any attention at all, you know, Michael Hayes and I, after Michael went to WWE, there was a, he he, he didn't give two shits for me. Nope. I, I had heat with Michael. and And I could never figure out why. That's how... You know, <laughs> f- fucking stupid I was about some of the things that I did back then, b- back in the 90s when I first started taking over. And I'll try to explain that in a minute without going too far in the weeds. But, you know, I had to make a decision once I finally uh, was, you know, promoted and, and started having more influence over the talent roster and things like that. Well, we had to make decisions. We had to cut costs. There was there was a cost-cutting mandate Um and we had to find a way to 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 turn a profit, and, you know, I looking at the economics of the tag team situation and realizing that we had a limited amount of resources and we had to make the most of those resources. You know, I was one of the first guys to start cutting tag teams and and certain talents, and I was of the opinion. Now I. I had always gotten along with Michael and, and WCW. We had a blast shooting the vignette you're talking about. We had a great time. You know, we, It's not like we hung out a lot, but when we did, we always had fun. And as Michael said to me when I went to dinner with him and, and Bruce, now when I got to the restaurant in Las Vegas last October, that was the, really the first time I had sat down and really talked to Michael about WCW and got any indication at all. As to why I had so much heat with him for so many years. And Michael was Michael was feeling no pain, let's put it that way, that night last October when we were sitting there with Bruce. And you know, we we started getting into a pretty heavy conversation. And and Michael said to me, he Goes, Eric, you know, damn, I thought you and I were friends. And as I'm sitting there having a cocktail with Bruce and Mike, I said, Well, Michael, we were friends. And he said something to the effect of, yeah, but man, first thing you did was cut us. Well, it wasn't personal, but he certainly took it that way, Mm. especially since he thought he and I were friends. And, you know, Michael still had a lot to offer. Michael was a very creative guy. And I, you know, I sat with Michael and Michael reminded me of this. I completely forgotten about it, but, you know, Michael was really keen on, you know, producing an album, a Freebird album in WCW. He was so excited about doing that. And I helped him, you know, Michael would come to me and he'd say, Hey, listen to this, tell me what you think. And I would tell him as a friend, you know, not as anybody that had any control back then. And he thought that we had this great relationship and we did. But when it came time to making some tough decisions, you know, I cut Michael. Well, I'm sure that hurt him and angered him and, and, and confused him. And he didn't feel it was fair or the right decision, all the things that he should have and and anybody would feel if you're in that spot. But I didn't see it that way. I just thought it was like, okay, well we got to make a move. We got to make a move and we can't afford these guys. And it's not really moving the needle the way we need it to. So you've got to make a decision, not taking into consideration how the talent, especially someone who thought they were a friend of mine. And it wasn't until, Michael and Bruce and I sat down last October in Las Vegas that I finally understood why I had so much heat with Michael, you know, go back to the table for three that I did with Jim Ross and, and Michael Hayes. And I can't remember who else was there. There was somebody else there and man, Michael just ripped me. Now he was two, two sheets to the wind or three at that time, but man, I I sat there and listened to this guy and the, you know, the anger and the resentment was so obvious. And it wasn't until this past October that I
0: understood why. Let's talk about some of these rule changes, um, that you sort of alluded to earlier, and there are a ton of them. I mean, this is such a major thing in WCW comes out of the June 8th, 1992 wrestling observer. WCW wrestlers this past week all received a letter officially listing the new rules, most of which had either been previously speculated upon here or talked about in a previous announcement to the wrestlers when Bill Watts appeared at the house show a few weeks back in Savannah, Georgia. Anyway, effective on June 1st, the rules dubbed the 10 commandments by the wrestlers go as follows use of the ring barricades. And the ring post is forbidden and will be cause for an automatic disqualification. Wrestling outside the ring is discouraged. Absolutely no low blows. The first offense is a $1,000 fine. The second offense is a $2,500 fine. And the third offense is a $5,000 fine and will be considered a breach of contract. If a wrestler is hit low, he is to make every effort to not sell the move as a low blow. All the wrestlers are due in the building one hour before the scheduled starting time of the show with fines, again, being implemented for being laid up thousand dollars for the first offense, 2,500 for the second offense and 5,000 and a breach of contract for the third offense. Missing an event, except in the case of the most severe injuries is considered a breach of contract. The only excusable exception to this rule is an act of God. Wrestlers who are injured and can't perform are still expected to make the town in order to show the fans that WCW no longer falsely advertise talent. The only exception would be a crippling injury, which would not allow for travel. Talking over the PA during the show is to be discouraged. Lewd hand gestures are prohibited as is any cursing loud enough for the audience to hear. Fraternization between heels and baby faces in public is not acceptable. This includes traveling together to and from the arena to public appearances, restaurants, and even to the gym. This also includes faces and heels socializing together in social situations and the gym. No guests are allowed in the dressing room, including family members, media, etc. Each wrestler is only allowed two complimentary tickets to each show for friends and family. Any number of tickets above that must be purchased at face value by the wrestler. Woof! There is a lot to unpack here. First of all, Did we really think that the reason we can't sell tickets is because the wrestlers are giving away a dozen tickets to a 10,000 seat arena. When there's only 800 people, that's a little silly. I can get behind no guests allowed in the dressing room. Uh, the fraternization between talent. That's a little old school. I'm on the fence about that one. We'll break these down. What do you think about these three rules here? The complimentary tickets, you know, no comps and you can't have anybody in the dressing room. And if you're a bad guy and he's a good guy, you guys can never be seen together. Again, I understand
1: it. And that nostalgic part of me, because I do have it, you know, I kind of like the idea, but I also like the idea of, you know, a new 63 Buick. I love old cars. Doesn't mean I would drive one to work every day. I love nostalgia. And this was Bill's attempt to kind of, again, I won't keep repeating myself, but kind of go back to the future. Yeah. And it was a failed, it was failed. And look, again, when I hear these things, part of me goes, well, that's a joke, you know, two comp tickets, you know, for talent, you got to buy them at face value. You know, anything over two. Well, that's pretty interesting when WCW had been giving away thousands of tickets to anybody with a pulse. And by the way, bring your own booze. That's okay too. We'll give you the ticket as long as you bring your own liquor. And I think this was probably Bill's way. I'm guessing this was probably Bill's way of addressing that problem because it was a big problem. I can't over-emphasize how, WCW had dug themselves such a deep, dark hole with the comp ticket strategy. Once you condition your market to to the fact that they don't have to purchase a ticket because they'll be available for free at the local pizza place um, five minutes before showtime, you're absolutely killing any chance you you have of creating a demand for that product. You're giving it away. It, 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 and so I understand it part of me smiles just a little bit when I hear it because I understand the nostalgic strategy behind it but what a it, I mean it was too late that train had left the station not I mean it, it was ridiculous the no fraternization thing again I, I would I would have agreed with that. You know, I, I, would have liked to, I know I didn't try to enforce it. I did not try to establish that as a rule uh, by 1995, 96, when I was really, really running things for the first time, probably in 95, I would have really liked to have changed the fact that there was absolutely no kayfabe, not because I thought it was going to drastically change the business or any of that kind of thing, but I've always believed that, you know, fans watch wrestling because they want to get, they want to live vicariously through the fiction and the characters and the action that they're seeing on on screen. And if you take them out of that, if you do things that make them realize that investing in characters and story is really kind of a joke on them because none of it is true. And and you make that obvious and you really are, are rubbing their noses in the fact that Hey, I know we're trying to make you believe all this is real, but clearly we don't really believe it ourselves because we're all hanging out together at the hotel bar. I understand that because you're actually taking some of the joy away you're taking the mystery away from it, 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 it it's like going to a mat. you go to David Copperfield in Las Vegas and you save all your money and you bring your wife or your girlfriend or whatever your boyfriend and you show up and you're expecting this great magic show and in 20 minutes before the show you see or a half hour before the show you show up early and you see David Copperfield working with all of his assistants and are going through the last final rundown of all the magic tricks and you see how it's all done and then the lights come down and you sit there and you suck down a drink and then the lights come back up and then they produce a magic show a david copperfield magic show for you well if you've already seen all that stuff behind the scenes and they've taken you out of the moment and taken away any possibility for you to feel as opposed to think because now that you've seen it you're watching it and going oh okay how i've already seen how they're going to do that trick let's let's see how well they do it now that they're trying to convince me it's it's real Now you're thinking and you're not feeling where if you just go in and you sit down and the lights come up and you see magic, you forget that it's a magic trick or you allow yourself to want to believe that it's, you know, it's magic to a degree, subconsciously or consciously. And I I think by, you know, the fraternization thing, I think it, it got out of hand. I don't disagree with this logic behind it. But I think the heavy-handed way of enforcing it made it—it just wasn't going to work, you know. And here's the other thing: is I've been sitting here listening to some of these rules, and I can't wait to dig into some more of them. But the rules that he put in place—I'm guessing—I'm not an employment attorney, and I don't specialize in employee and employer versus independent contractor rules and regulations and laws. But I'm guessing most of these laws pretty much flew in the face of the independent contractor status of of the talent on board. You cannot tell somebody who's an independent contractor who they can go out and have a beer with when the show's over. I'm sorry. If you were building a house, Conrad, you you know this business. If you're out there developing a piece of property, you're building a house and you hire a plumber and you hire a bricklayer and you hire an electrician and they show up on your job site, you can demand, expect – that they're going to be working on their respective jobs and do the things that you've contracted for them to do but can you imagine saying okay now i'm sorry joe blow the plumber you do not get to hang out with electrician bob
0: hey man want to make this the best summer ever what if you could get rid of your credit card debt and lower your monthly payments by five six seven even 800 bucks a month But what if the little cherry on top was no house payments for two months? That's right. No payments in August or September. You're done until October and come October, you're going to have a better mortgage, but don't take my word for it. Ask Kenneth in Hazel green, Kentucky. He says, all I was trying to do was refinance down to 10 years in order to set me up for retirement without a mortgage payment. After telling first family, what I wanted, not only did they get me a shorter term, but they were able to reduce my payment and cut my interest rate in half. I could not be more satisfied with the process and the outcome. If you're looking to get out of debt faster and with cheaper monthly payments, and maybe even get rid of all your credit card debt, man, you've got to go to savewithconrad.com. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can qualify. And because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. So what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free. At savewithconrad.com. NLS number 65084, equal housing lender. That's savewithconrad.com. Let's make it even more complicated, Eric, because the first thing I thought about was what about main event fitness? And I realized in this particular era, Lex Luger is now with the WWF, but he wasn't always. And there were different times where Lex Luger would be a bad guy when he worked for WCW, sings always the baby face. Does this mean we're supposed to believe that these two guys co-own a gym, but they don't fraternize. They don't communicate. They don't have, that's a super sticky situation. I I can understand some of the other examples, like his old thing about, Hey, you got to show up at least an hour before bell time. I mean, call time for TV in the modern era is like one o'clock and the show will not start until eight. So. Maybe we've gone too far with that, but demanding you're there an hour ahead of time, I don't think is an unrealistic ask. I do think that some of the other stuff is to protect wrestling storylines, like wrestling outside the ring. That way, when there is a brawl, it's a big deal. But if every match has a brawl, well, we have no brawls. Sort of the same thing with using the ring barricade. I mean, one of the first times I saw that used in a big way is during the whole Steamboat Savage thing, and it was a big deal. But then when everybody's doing it every match, well, it's not special anymore. Same with the ring post, same with the low blow. I get all that, but and I could also get behind, hey, just because you can't wrestle doesn't mean you can't be here. We're paying you to be here. So if you're injured, you know, be here. We'll have you wave to the crowd, do something, so at least they got to see you. It is disappointing that you couldn't wrestle, but at least they got to see you. I think some of this stuff makes sense, but some of it is a little silly. It just went too far.
1: And it it was, number one, it was illegal, I think, in many cases, in terms of the independent contractor versus an employee's status. So first off, it was illegal. And even if it wasn't illegal, it was so impractical to enforce. And, And again, another morale killer. You know, it just, it's again, I get it. Let's go back to the sixties. There's a lot of reasons I'd like to go back to the sixties because hell, I was a preteen and a teenager back then. A lot of things were more fun for me then than they are today, but you can't go back in time. The audience won't let you WWF as you, as you pointed out in 1992 had blown up the entertainment factor and perf- they had changed it. There was no going back. It was a spectacle it was a show. It was drenched in entertainment in every possible way. Some of them great, some of them okay, some of them not so much. But the fact remains, Vince McMahon changed the game and there was no going back. There was no going back. And some of these rules are just, they're they're entertaining to hear about at this point.
0: Let's let's also mention that it's not all bad stuff. I mean, I, I know some people are going to listen to this and, and they're going to think we're just burying bill Watts. That's not my intention. He does have some other good stuff. He mentions in this, uh, June 1st meeting before the TV tapings happen, that he's going to cut back on the length of the TV tapings because he believes it burns out the fans and hurts the return gates in those cities. So the, the prior regime would have, you know, a television taping day where they'd have 25 matches that's gone. Uh, Meltzer says crowd enthusiasm also generally wanes after a certain point in those long tapings, which makes the television product appear lackluster. I totally agree. I think that's a smart thing, but here's the more controversial thing. We've alluded to it a little bit already. Meltzer would write, and what will almost surely be the most controver- controversial new directive Watts has banned everything off the top rope. The theory behind the rule is that it will enable the heels to get heat like Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkel in the early seventies in the AWA when they got incredible heat when stevens would illegally come off the top ropes behind the referees back and lead to pinning the baby faces i guess the idea here is to cast bobby eaton in the ray stevens role on the heel side however in this day and age with fans accustomed to moves of that variety with wrestlers like steamboat and pillman not to mention liger and muda eliminating almost from the top rope is attempting to retrogress the in-ring product itself and take away from what has probably been the most universally accepted change worldwide of the past decade, which is the advent of the new hot aerobatic moves like moonsaults, Alabama jams, shooting stars, air pillmans, and the like. It is a big deal that, that this is banned. We should also mention it's not the only thing like this though. He's also banned uh, blood telling the boys that the subject has become too controversial. So you can't juice anymore. Uh, and obviously he says, you know, we're going to have to start steroid testing. So that's going to happen in the next six weeks. So be ready. So that's sort of the the full gamut of all the changes, the most controversial of all, of course, being the top rope. And I, I love that you sort of fashioned it to the old time wrestling you grew up on. And the reference, even that Meltzer gives is Ray Stevens in the AWA. I mean, you're right on target here.
1: No, and, and again, I understand and agree with some of the logic that Bill might have been, you know, processing at the time and implementing at the time. Because, And, and I've even said this to you in recent weeks in reference to today's current product. There's very little structure in a matter. I mean, what's illegal anymore? I mean, a referee is, eh, it's kind of like that parsley and the piece, a slice of orange on a Denny's, you know, egg breakfast. It's there. I guess it serves a purpose according to somebody. But if you watch wrestling today, you know, the rules are so, I mean, I guess there's rules, but there's really not. You know, you see, you know, you see things, you know, if you watch a two hour or three hour show, you know, in today's environment, you see guys getting away with things blatantly in front of a referee that in the following match or two matches later is illegal. And they call them for it. It's like, man, there's just no structure. There's no format. There's no way to to kind of communicate to the wrestling audience the rules. Well, if you don't have any rules, why the fuck do you need a referee? And if you have a referee who can't enforce the rules, that makes it even worse. And it's really you're just watching a free for all. You're watching a demolition derby. And and I think that's. Part of the challenge we have today because it's different, difficult to tell a good story without the framework and structure of rules that people can understand how when a heel breaks said rule, it's a big deal. So a big part of me agrees with what Bill Watts was probably thinking at the time. I think the, the, the disagreement or different approach that I think I would have taken um, had I known – Than what I know now and been invited to the table was to integrate some of those rules over a period of time and make the fact that you are introducing these new rules, a part of the story. Now they did that to a degree here by having a pay-per-view that had NWA rules and WCW rules with regard to the top rope. So I'm not saying they ignored it, but I think had Bill, maybe taking a slightly different approach and said, okay, over the next 12 months, we're going to restructure what we do because we think we can tell better stories. We think we can create more effective heels. We think we can create more effective baby faces if we go about it like this. And that this would be over the next six months or 12 months or whatever, rules are going to become kind of a, a, if not a central part of the story, at least a supporting element of those stories. So the audience could have adjusted to it, could have been, and when I say adjusted, understood it and understood why it mattered and understood from an entertainment point of view and from their perspective as fans, why it was creating a better product. But instead of doing it gradually, um, Bill came in and just basically slammed the door said okay you guys get out of get out of this room over here that's a 1992 room this room over here is a 1974 room i want everybody to go over to the 1974 room cuz that's where we're going to live and it was just too much of a shock it was just too it, it was too much and it didn't it didn't make sense to the audience bill understood it jim ross probably understood it some of the other talent may have even understood it and maybe maybe agreed with it, although I never met any of them, may have even agreed with it deep down inside. But the execution of it was so drastic and jarring and boring. It was just boring. The wrestling was good, solid wrestling. and We'll cover it. But the overall feeling, there was no feeling to it. It was just eh.
0: Let's, uh, let's talk about one other change that we didn't touch on. Uh, this is directly from the observer Watts co-hosted the Saturday night show that was taped on the first and will air on the 13th, proclaiming the beginning of a new era for WCW calling it WCW, the real deal. Watts called the WWF a cartoon and said that WCW wouldn't have people throwing up or being electrocuted on TV. Not yet. Anyway, he also (laughs) said the padding on the floor was eliminated with Watts saying something to the effect that real wrestlers don't need a bunch of mattresses to fall onto. If that is Watts' legit reason for removing the padding on the floor, then it doesn't seem justifiable and does seem behind the times. However, there is some dispute among the wrestlers as to whether or not padding serves its design purpose, which is lessening of injuries from bumps on the floor. Certainly, it lessens the hip and back injuries from bumps because the mats have more padding than concrete, of course. However, some have argued... He creates knee and ankle injuries when guys jump off the ropes or apron because the feet aren't landing on a solid foundation. This is a little controversial, if you will, the idea of removing the padding around the ring, but maybe less so than the top rope. Did you have a stance on removing the padding one way or another? I did. I thought it was stupid.
1: I thought it was stupid, but not, not to sound cold and callous my reaction to that was more about taking the, taking the mats away from ringside, eliminating the action that was taking place outside of the ring, eliminating low blows, eliminating top rope, eliminating hand. I mean, uh, you know, all of the thing, all of the tools that Bill Watts was taking out of the toolboxes of all the talent that was expected to go in and have a great match and entertain the audience who had been conditioned and accustomed to those things. So it, it, it was just another in a long list of elements and tools that Bill Watts was taking away from the talent and expecting them to go out and have a match that the audience would react to. It just was so counterproductive. And I agree, you know, with with some of what Dave said in terms about it, you know, being more dangerous in terms of ankles and things like that and not having the pads, you know, back injury. I mean, there was a lot of – there was some logic in all of this. But again, when you look at it in its totality, in terms of all of the elements of the product that Watts was eliminating – and yet expecting people to go out and have what? A collegiate style wrestling match? No disrespect at all to, to Dr. S. Steve Williams and Terry Bam Bam Gordy and, and, and guys of that era. Because I love some of that stuff. And in their day, they were you know considered some of the best at what they did. But if you were to put that match that we're about to cover in a little bit here on any – forget about pay-per-view. Any television show that people have been watching over the last 15 years – i would be an instant channel changer it doesn't work it worked then it i mean it worked back in the 70s uh, it, it, it and maybe early 80s it
0: didn't work in 1992. well it's a it's a weird time man the winds a changer here here's another thing from the observer gary jester has been elevated to the head of all promoters and will be responsible for hiring promoters, the touring schedule, and overseeing the work of the promoters. Uh, how do you think Gary did? We, we, we've heard this name a lot through the years, but you and I haven't had a lot of discussion about Gary Jester, but looks like he's uh, moving on up here.
1: Yeah. I mean, Gary, look, Gary was, uh, I, I, if I had to describe Gary to somebody who would never, or excuse me, um, yeah, Gary Jester. To someone who had never heard about him, or knew anything about the wrestling business, I would describe Gary Jester much like I would describe Mike Weber at that time—a very competent, um, a bricklayer. He was a laborer. He he didn't Gary didn't have a great Rolodex. Gary didn't have a lot of great ideas. Gary wasn't innovative. Gary wasn't an entrepreneur. There were a lot of things that a promoter needs to be that Gary wasn't, but Gary was very good at maintaining the relationships he did have. They were limited, very limited, um, and and he was a good he was a good bricklayer, but he wasn't an architect. And and WCW, especially in the nineties, when it came to promoting live events, they needed an architect with vision, not a bricklayer. Not somebody that was going to say, okay, your, your bucket of wet cement is over here. That pile of bricks is over there. If you need some extra sand and some extra gravel and then mix up some more concrete, that's over in the back of the truck. I'll come back two days from now and I expect this wall to be up. If you if you approached you know promoting events like that with Gary, he was a very competent individual. But if you were to say to someone, look, I, I don't know what kind of a wall I want. I just know I need one you know, this fence I have here isn't working. I need something, you know, to, to, to keep the animals out. You know, I need at least a six foot fence because the deer keep jumping over the other one or whatever. I don't know what I want. Come back to me with some ideas. That was not Gary (laughs) Jester. That was not Gary was the, okay, we're going to Baltimore. We're going to need to comp these many tickets. Here are the radio stations we always work with. Let's go back and do that again. Well, going back and doing that again was a bad idea because that didn't work in the first place. There were no new ideas. There were no new approaches to anything. It was all let's go back to what we used to do. And that's exactly the opposite of what WCW at that time needed.
0: Well, what Jr needed was another gig. Uh, it comes out that he's hired to be the new color commentator for the Atlanta Falcons for the upcoming season. Uh, Meltzer, right Ross, who will retain his, Present administrative and announcing duties with WCW will do both the pregame and postgame shows, along with being the third man in the booth during the games. The Falcons' radio flagship station is WSB, and Ross's wrestling show is the highest rated talk show on that station, which is probably part of the reason he got the job. It's usually very hard for someone so well known as a wrestling announcer, no matter how good they may be at announcing to get a break with legit sports because of how wrestling and everyone involved in wrestling is often perceived. So really this is a feather in Ross's cap to pull this one off, you know, in hindsight, do you think, I mean, we all know that JR loves wrestling, but do you think JR would have preferred to have done football? I mean, it's, it is a pretty cool thing to get to do both here. And we know that eventually he's going to get another crack at that doing some XFL stuff, but that is a whole nother world from doing it for the Atlanta Falcons. Do you think in hindsight football was, was JR's real passion? I think so. You know, I've never talked to to Jim about that, but
1: I, I think if you, you know, if you pay attention to the way Jim characterizes a lot of his, a lot of his commentary has so many inside references to, coaching college football or coaching professional football or the NFL, you know, the the team roster or there's just so many references to and, and weaving of football related kind of imagery in what Jim does. And I I think it's safe to assume that he probably, if, if Jim had a chance to go back and say, okay, I've got a choice to relive a good chunk of my life. I can either be, you know, an NFL announcer full time, or I can be have the career in wrestling I've had. My guess is that Jim would have preferred to be involved in football, either at the collegiate level or or in the NFL, obviously as an announcer or or whatever. Um, that's always been my sense, you know. And and I guess because I pick up on so many of of Jim's references football like references and so much of his commentary that that's why I feel the way I feel, but I don't know. I'll have to ask Jim that next time I talk to him.
0: Abdul, the butcher comes to the Omni show and he's, uh, trying and succeeding in losing a job of the same night. He, uh, he comes in looking to get a gig and he's asked to put over Dustin Rhodes clean, makes a fuss about it, about not being treated right and quits on the spot. Of course, he's got another tour of Japan, and then he's going to be headlining in Puerto Rico. So it's not like it really matters in the scheme of things. But uh, Abdul the Butcher, I don't know, coming in and refusing to do jobs—it's not like Watts is going to take kindly to that, huh?
1: Yeah, he was the uh, he was the pre- predecessor to the Honky Tonk Man. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the Honky Tonk Man took his notes. Uh, yeah, that that was a bad play. I mean, you had to. No, I don't. I don't. I never. I don't think I probably had two minutes of conversations with Abdullah the Butcher. Um, he was kind of come and gone by the time I was involved really at all, uh, beyond C-Squad announcing, but you know, Abdul, I had to know the, the reputation of Bill Watson to come down and draw a line in the sand like that. He you know, should have just stayed home. <laughs> it would, the result would have been the same.
0: If you can't get enough, you're going to love adfreeshows.com. Check it out. Here's a clip from AdFreeShows.com that you can't hear anywhere else.
1: Where's my? Where's our bonuses? Mike and I have bonuses coming in our contracts. Oh, you don't have any bonuses? Okay, we got to stop this. I mean, there's just too much bullshit here. I'll never be able to swim through it all. Okay, so Bill Watts gets fired and then hands Gagne a contract. Just think about this for a minute. When Bill, First of all, when you get fired, you know this, you, when you work for a corporation, publicly held corporation in particular, and especially when you get fired under the circumstances that Bill Watts got fired, do you think they let him go to a television taping to hand out contracts? Does that make sense to anybody other than Greg and obviously Jim Cornette? They're one in the same. Does it make sense to you? Did you see the absurdity that I'm
0: hearing? No, the idea that Bill Watts gets fired and still shows up to work passing out contracts. No, didn't happen
1: on, it, on its face. So stupid, Greg Ganya, Didn't you learn a thing? It's just so stupid. If you're going to work, work smart. Don't work stupid. This was such a stupid thing for him to say, because again, it's so provably false and it's not possible in the mind of anybody, but a delusional fuck like Greg Gagne. And, and oh, by the way, did you see how he, he and, and by the way, I didn't write the contracts for uh, anybody as an executive producer. I mean, I, I could, I could fire someone. I could want to hire somebody, but writing those contracts was not under, under my auspices. At, so to suggest that is so absurd in so many different ways. But did you notice how he, first of all, this idea that, okay, so Bill Watts gets fired and then subsequently goes to television, hands Greg a contract that he shouldn't sign because I've already been hired as ex- an executive producer. Come on. Come on. Even Dave Meltzer would have to call bullshit on that. It It's just so ridiculous. But he's so, um... Effortlessly, because when you're this much of a bullshitter, it comes effortlessly. He effortlessly lumped Mike Graham's incentive-based contract that Greg demanded from Bill and negotiated from Bill Watts. All of a sudden, Mike Graham had one too. That's really interesting. And now the the cherry on top is they're going to give Dusty a month off. And somebody made the decision to put Mike Graham and Greg Gagne in charge of booking. Who would that have been? If Bill Watts had been fired. And by the way, he got escorted out of the building, right? Figuratively, figuratively or literally he, if if he was in the building, when he found out he got fired, he got escorted out by security as most people do as an executive, uh, or often people do. Um, if he wasn't in the office when he got fired, he definitely didn't get back into the office or to a television taping or anything else. But to suggest that somehow me getting hired as an executive producer overlapped almost perfectly with Bill Watts getting fired is, you know, the first flaw in this bizarre story. The second flaw is that somehow Greg Gandhi and Mike Graham were writing televisions so who put them in charge if Dusty was indeed given 30 days off? Which maybe he would have been. I don't know. Could have been. I wasn't involved at the time. Wasn't a part of management at the time. So I'm I'm going to leave that out there as maybe it's possible. Maybe Dusty said, fuck it. I'm taking 30, 30 days off until you, you people figure out what you want to do. I'm going to go home and play with a horse. I, yeah, I, I could see it. But to suggest that somehow in that interim period of time, Greg Gagne, Mike Graham were writing TV. Jesus, what kind of dope are you smoking, Greg? Never happened. Never would have happened. And oh, by the way, did you hear how, oh, somewhere along the way during this this era, this this fictional timeline in Greg's mind, ratings started coming up and pay-per-views started coming up? That's news to me and probably everybody else. And those incentives that were in Greg's contract that I, you know, nefariously somehow eliminated and then force Greg under duress to sign anyway? Those incentives that Greg thought they were there were actually being delivered, and now Greg was owed money as a result? All all of this happened within like a 30-day timeline? Come on. Oh, my God. I can't wait to run into Greg Gagne again. I'm going to make a special trip. So what are you waiting for?
0: Head on over to AdFreeShows.com right now Hard to beat. Adfreeshows.com. Meltzer's going to push that it's a big time for WCW here because somehow through scheduling, and, and who knows how that happened because you weren't involved in that at this point, they're going to tape a clash on a Tuesday night and then it's going to air right before a pay per view. So, you know, we've got two shows very, very close to each other and we've also got a Holyfield fight on pay per view. There's just a lot of competition here and WCW might not be helping themselves putting a clash so close to a pay-per-view. Uh, when that, when these tapings from Watts finally start to air, Meltzer would write the new era for WCW started on TV Saturday with the introduction of Bill Watts, as vice president. I had a mixed reaction to the first episode on a positive side as a longtime fan it had some nice nostalgia to hear Watts commentate on the matches as he did in the old mid South wrestling promotion in the early eighties. Watts has always been one of the best announcers, if not the best at dramatically getting angles across in a believable manner. He was even able to make some very unbelievable ideas look and come across as realistic on the downside. There was just a feeling about how much wrestling has changed since that time. Watts and only Anderson doing those early in the show interviews only made it too obvious how cutting a believable promo has almost become a lost art form. The big criticism of these shows Eric is there's a lot of bill Watts all over the program. How much uh, do you think that hurt the product or hurt morale with the guys that it feels like Watts is featuring himself sort of out front, first and foremost above everybody else. I think
1: probably the reason you know, a lot of people felt that way, particularly the audience who again, didn't follow wrestling like the, you know, 2% or 5% of the really hardcore fans that even knew who Bill Watts was. Bill Watts, you know, for 98% of the wrestling fans that were watching WCW at the time, they didn't have a clue who Bill Watts was. They didn't know his history. They didn't care about his history, even if you told them about it, because they didn't relate to any of it. They had not seen any of it. It didn't matter to them. So now you're dropping this guy in who's coming in like, know the second coming but nobody nobody knew him nobody cared he, he didn't bring any equity with him other than the handful of people that knew his history so when you put yourself on television without any equity with the audience nobody knows who you are nobody cares who you are and while certain people you know you know got tickled by the nostalgia factor and bill was really good by the way you know, at, at creating drama and doing, you know, a fantastic job on commentary. I agree with that. It's probably where Jim Ross learned to become Jim Ross in many respects. But it wasn't enough to to justify putting yourself on camera that much. It, it became, you know, I, I think Bill West was trying to make himself, you know, the the Lombardi of WCW by by. Keeping himself on camera as often as he did and as much as he did.
0: Let's, uh, let's also mention a couple of new things about potential talents moving and shaking. Meltzer would write, it appears that Jake Roberts isn't coming in anytime soon. Apparently, they aren't even close on contract terms as Ross was going to be offered a heavy duty guarantee by Kip, whereas Bill wants a more incentive oriented deal. As a reminder, um, He gave his notice in the WWF and changed the finish at WrestleMania on the undertaker thinking he had a rock solid deal. And then what do you know? There's a new sheriff in town and it ain't happening. It's also not happening for Sid. Uh, Meltzer would write that he's been calling both the WWF and WCW about returning when summer is over, you know, softball and whatnot. Uh, WCW is saying they're not interested. And Watts has even said that number, a number of times publicly, uh, the idea that Sid is not real high on Bill Watts wish list. It's not exactly shocking.
1: Not shocking at all. And especially when you look at this pay-per-view and, and see who Bill Watts put in the main event. I mean, Terry Bam Bam Gordy and Dr. This, Steve Williams and, and that, and they ended up, well, I don't want to give it away yet. We'll cover it at the end, but that was Bill Watts's idea of who should represent WCW and not just who, but the style of wrestling that should represent WCW as a brand. And, and Sid was probably, probably looked more like a WWF, WWF cartoonish kind of character prototype that Bill Watts was so adamant about, you know, getting away from. So no, it's not surprising at all. And then, you know, throw in the softball thing and some of the other personal quirks it's, you know, Sid brought to the table and, I don't think it's a shock to anybody that said this just wasn't high on bill Watts's list of people to work with.
0: The beach blast pay-per-view happened on June 20th. We'll break it down in in great detail another time, but this is right after that clash of the champions. And I wanted to mention what happened on the show, just to give some context for what bill's flavor of wrestling is. J Y D Tom Zink, and big Josh beat Tracy Smothers, Richard Morton and DDP in a dark match. And then Brian Pillman would drop his WCW light heavyweight title to Scotty Flamingo, who we know is going to go on to be Raven. Uh, Ron Simmons is going to beat Terry Taylor. Greg Valentine is going to beat Marcus Bagwell. Sting beats Cactus Jack in a false count anywhere match. Ricky Steamboat and Rick Rude do a 30-minute Iron Man match. The Steamboat wins by a score of four to three. Dustin Rhodes, Barry Wyndham, and Nikita Koloff beat Arn Anderson, Steve Austin, and Bobby Eaton. They're part of the Dangerous Alliance, of course. Ole Anderson is the special guest. The Steiners do a 30-minute time limit draw for the tag titles with Terry Gordy and Steve Williams. And then there's a Clash of the Champions that airs the next night. Now it was taped before, but it aired right after. And this is where we introduce some of the other talents. That are going to be participating in this particular pay per view. Let's run through the results of that clash very quickly. Steamboat and Koloff over Joe and Dean Malenko. That's right, Joe and Dean Malenko here in 1992. Rude and Austin pick up a win over Bagwell and Zink. Doc and Gordy over Jeff and Larry O'Day. Uh, Anderson and Eaton lose to Rhodes and Wyndham. Freebirds beat Silver King. Uh, Liger and Pillman over Benoit. That's right, Chris Benoit and Wellington. Uh, Hase and Nogami beat the fake headhunters, and then uh, Gordian and Williams beat the Steiners, and well, we're set for the pay per view. So we're we're marching towards this NWA tag team title tournament, but somehow the Steiners are out. And Meltzer would write, "You've got to figure they'll do something to add the Steiners to the pay per view card because it seems ridiculous to not have them somewhere on a pay per view, but yet yeah, they're not." Do you think that is, uh, maybe there's something injury wise going on. I mean, we, we don't know now, but, or do you think perhaps it was fans are expecting the Steiners? Maybe if we hold them off, we can do something with them later. Or is it more of bill just not wanting to fuck with Scott Steiner?
1: If I had to guess, cause it would, it would just be a guess. I would guess for the latter. I mean, there was an issue between Scott and, and bill Watts it was a very tense one. There were times at center stage when I thought for certain Scott Str- Scott Snyder and Bill Watts were going to go at it. This was probably my guess. Don't know. Wasn't involved. My guess. This was Bill Watts's way of putting Scott and Rick
0: in their place. It's unbelievable. They've still got a great, a big a Great American Bash tour uh, planned you know, all through July and through the halfway of uh, of August. It looks like it's pretty ambitious. Meltzer would write that Mr. Hughes is bleaching his hair and planning to come back with a new look and a big push. He also says that beach Blast pay-per-view we ran through only did 70,000 buys, which is a $1.4 million gross. WCW share of that is going to be $630,000. And here's what's remarkable to think about that show happens on June 20th in three weeks on July 12th. We've got another pay-per-view. The one we're talking about now, the clash Mm. that happened on Monday, the day after the show did a 2.8 rating, uh, in a, and a 4.8 share. And that is the lowest number all time for a clash. It's down 25% from the previous all time low. So fans are not jumping all over this thing. Some of this could just be bad scheduling, but still it is, uh, not a good sign for bill Watts. Is it? No. And, and in
1: fairness to bill, not all of this was his fault. I mean, WCW had been suffering for a couple of years before Bill Watts came in with the the Watts experiment, if you will, all the things that we've been discussing. So WCW was already into a pretty deep hole by the time they brought Watts in, and unfortunately, Bill brought... A bigger shovel. (laughs) That's, you know, through some of these decisions and scheduling issues, whether it was, you know, WCW's fault or was, you know, forced upon them. I don't know. I wasn't involved, but um, in either case, you know, WCW was in a deep, dark pit and Bill came in and made it deeper and darker, but it was already pretty bad when he got there.
0: Let's also mention that uh, they're trying some new things with house shows. Uh, and, and, I can get behind this Meltzer would write in an attempt to push Atlanta's Omni as the new Madison square garden of wrestling. WCW had two title changes on the July 5th house show with Brad Armstrong beating Scotty Flamingo to win the light heavyweight title and doc and Gordy beating the Steiner brothers to capture the WCW tag titles. And Meltzer would say, uh, looking at things from the short term, this was the ultimate Pennywise dollar foolish decision. Only a tiny percentage of the audience watching nationally on TBS lived within a one hour drive of the Omni, uh, and could even attend the show. Whereas roughly 30% of those watching the shows have pay-per-view capability and could, if they wanted to order the bash, even with all the hype, the Omni crowd was 2,500 fans and a $25,000 gate, roughly the same as the previous card. That's just hard to imagine. Isn't it, Eric.
1: It is hard to imagine. And again, I think it's illustrative of, you know, the the back to the future mentality. And and, and Dave was right in his observation. And I've heard, you know, it's funny as I've heard variations of that strategy and how to improve house shows since the day I walked into the wrestling business in 1987 you know, there's, you've always had this dichotomy, especially as we've started, I mean, the industry started producing more and more television content, you know, an obvious kind of challenge is, well, if, if we're producing more, if we're putting out more product on television, what can we offer in the arena to keep fans inspired, to keep, to make it feel special, like anything can happen. And anytime, well, not anytime, but so often over the course of the Twenty or thirty years I've spent in the in the industry, when the house show business would take a pretty, you know, deep dive, you know, it was okay. Well, we've got to we've got to start having world championship matches in in house shows, and we've got to send a crew out there and and videotape it so we can put it back on television as a as a way to kind of to solve the problem that you just. just described there in Meltzer's commentary so yeah we're going to change the belts in the house shows so that every match feels like it's important and we'll shoot it on video and we'll replay it on TV to reinforce the fact that yeah because you got to go to the house shows too because anything can happen but the problem was the house shows were so boring you almost felt stupid going to them you'd you'd pay money if you paid money unless you got your ticket at the pizza hut you know, an hour before the show for free because you bought two cokes and a slice of pizza which was usually the case but even if you did that, you'd get to the arena and it was dark and it was dingy, and the production values were the shits. It was such a horrible contrast to even with WCW and its low production values in the early 90s. It felt so much less than the, what you saw on television that it didn't matter if you bit the heads off chickens in the main event. Nobody cared. But, man, I've I've heard that strategy. You know, we've got to make the house shows more important. We've got to start changing the way we do house shows. And everybody tries these different experiments, and then they go back to what they're normally doing. Because it, it comes down to if your television property isn't hot, if your characters aren't hot, if you're in the music business and they don't listen to your song on the radio or now in streaming, no one's going to come to your concert. And that's the problem that WCW had. Nobody was watching the product on television, and even fewer started watching it after Bill Watts took over, that it didn't matter what they did in the house shows. And to have that kind of small, local territory, because that's what it was, it was that territory mentality, you know, let's make – you know, the Omni, the Madison Square Garden of wrestling. Okay, good Good luck with that. It's just so reflective of that back-to-the-future mentality that Watts had. He had no vision into the future. He didn't really understand the power of cable television. He resented the direction that wrestling had taken by 1992 and into the 90s. He, 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 he was fighting so hard to go back to the, the 70s that it just was – it was horrible, and having title changes on house shows and all that, and it, it was just another example of that back to the future mentality I keep referencing.
0: Meltzer sort of wrapped up what was going on with the talent like this. It appears the big losers now that Watts is in charge are Brian Pillman, Jushin Liger, Tom Zink, the Freebirds, and Marcus Bagwell. The big winners are Terry Gordy, Steve Williams, Mr. Hughes, Ron Simmons, Greg Valentine, Dick Slater. The Barbarian and Dan Spivey. Man, when you look at those lists, could they be any more different?
1: Yeah, let's get rid of Brian Pillman and let's bring in, you know, Terry Gordy. I mean, come on. And Steve Williams, come on. I mean, I mean, I don't know what else to say, but you know, it sound like I'm repeating myself over and over again. But I think that that characterizes the vision. And the brand that Bill Watts had in his head.
0: Um, Zabisco also looks like he'll be phased away from full-time wrestling to concentrate on commentary. That's going to start here in 1992, man. Just look at him a few years later, being one of the more critical voices on nitro Zabisco really stepped his game up. Once he got into uh, commentary, did he know it?
1: God, he did. You know, and I used to work with Larry in AWA on commentary. I loved working with Larry. Larry, one of the more underrated and effective color commentators that I've ever worked with, not the biggest star, not the most successful, but I think the most effective, one of the most effective color commentators in wrestling over the last couple of decades. Very, very underrated. He didn't have that really big personality. In fact, Larry had the opposite of the big personality. Um, But he, damn – he was so good at it. He knew how to tell a story. He knew when to shift gears. He he knew how to, and I think better than almost anybody, really get ins- allow you to get inside of the mind of the guys who were in the ring performing. I've talked about that in the past. I think Larry was one of, if not the best at
0: it. Let's talk about the ultimate... Bill Watts move. I can't believe this is real. I learned it for the very first time in my research for this show directly from the observer. Watts has now banned baby faces and heels from flying in the same airplane, which in some cases has made for a tough travel schedule that much tougher with the faces and heels alternating weeks and having to take the early flights out of town after wrestling the previous night. The reason given wasn't kayfabe as much as fear that if everyone was on the same plane and it went down, there would be nobody left to wrestle. So now the billion to one odds of that happening are doubled. Is this the most okay boomer thing you've ever heard in your life?
1: I, 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 I know that it is true. It's just still hard for me to believe it. <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh! I don't even know what to say to that. You know the idea that no, it's not cafe, but well, we need some folks to wrestle, and if all all are dead, we don't have a show. So,
1: yeah, and and, and let's take it a step further. I mean, if I would have been involved in that conversation, I would have said, "Yeah, but Bill, now you're talking about booking sixty different aircraft for all the different talent." 50 if they're all taking different flights let's we'll cut that in half So because baby faces could fly together and heels could fly together so just for sake of easy numbers let's say assuming you've got let's pick a number assuming you've got 50 no that'd be too many 30 guys on a show that'd be a big show that'd be a pay per view but let's say you got 30, 30 guys well the heels and the baby faces can't fly together so we're going to double the amount of flights that guys are going to have to take to get into a pay per view the odds of those flights being canceled or delayed or otherwise creating issues or having, you know, flight issues and not be getting in on time now just went exponentially higher. you just have more flights, right? I think the odds of people missing flights or getting to the show late as a result of not being able to fly together was much higher than a plane going down. And, and probably would have set up a, a much more you know challenging logistical nightmare in terms of travel as opposed to the you know catastrophic one of a flight going down I've never heard of anything like that God damn, that was bizarre
0: it's crazy let's go, let's talk about the show I feel like we've talked about Watts and what he's changing enough we're an hour, more than an hour and a half in we're just now getting to the pay-per-view this is why you got to listen to all the shows boys and girls I know sometimes you see the title to the show and it says, Great American bash 92 and you're like, oh, I didn't like that show. It's about a lot more than just that one show, uh, great American bash here. According to the readers of the wrestling observer got 32% thumbs up 49.1% thumbs down 18.8% thumbs in the middle. Everyone seemed to like sting and big van Vader as the best match, the worst match, well, it was the Japanese talent and the free birds. That's probably something we could have, uh, suggested or guessed or picked. All right, let's get into it. Let's start at the very beginning. Of course, um, the first match. It's Rick Steamboat and Nikita Koloff taking on Jushin Thunder Liger and Brian Pillman. They get plenty of time—nineteen minutes and twenty-five seconds. Uh, it gets three and a quarter stars. What would you think? I liked it. You know, it was a great opening match, um,
1: despite all the issues that we talked about earlier. Um, First of all, you know, the crowd was hot. It was the first match. You know, they came. They wanted to see some great action. They wanted to see some of the stars they had, you know, been watching on television. So the mood was there. They hadn't been bored to tears. They hadn't watched the same thing over and over and over again for two and a half hours. This was the first match out of the card. Brian had a great uh, fan following. He had established himself as, you know, a you know flying Brian Pillman. You know, one of the early... You know, uh, pioneers of that super high-flying athletic style, really. Liger, same. You know, Liger had a decent reputation with, you know, the smaller percentage of the audience who knew he was who he was. I, I liked it. Koloff and Steamboat. I really liked that tag team. There were so many things I liked about this match. Um Again, perfect example, you know, lights are up, they introduce the talent, match starts, lights go down, kind of kills the crowd almost immediately. A lot of ground action, you know, which I liked. I really liked it. I liked the the limited amount of flying. Now, I think in this case they were allowed to use the top rope. So this is one of the exceptions to the WCW rules that this pay-per-view offered. And since coming off the, if I understood the rules correctly, coming off the top rope in the NWA was legal in the NWA, but not WCW. So in this match, we were playing by NWA rules. And I think that was a good illustration of what Bill's goals might have been, giving him some credit here. He might have been easing his way into making that top rope really special so when it did happen you got a much better reaction a baby face pop or whatever um, and in in this match that worked because the audience anticipated that high flying action from Brian Pillman they didn't get much of it in this match they the Brian spent most of his time working a 70s-style wrestling match. But when those occasions did happen, and he made it to the top rope, and this is an illustration of the fact that Bill Watts may have been on something but took it too far when Pillman started making his way up to the top rope to do the things that fans expected him to do, this match got a pretty good reaction. It, it, it kind of went all downhill <laughs> afterwards, after this match. But I, I like this match. I... I good strong storytelling in the ring. The announcing on this show I loved. I thought Jim Ross was I it's hard to say, you know, Jim Ross was at its best because he's been at his best for a long time and, and many times. But I think him and and Jesse Ventura worked really well together here.
0: I totally agree. You know, and 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 JR has has said, yeah, you, know, you know, over the years that he didn't give Jesse a fair shake and you know, he was in his own feelings about Jesse's contract, uh, but you know, Jesse negotiated a good contract for himself. That's not necessarily something Jim should punish him for. Jim needed to negotiate a better deal for himself. So either way, Meltzer would write. About
1: yeah, but, but, but keep in mind at this point, Jim Ross and Bill Watts were, and I hope Jim doesn't take exception to this, but they were tied to the hip. Yeah, they were, they were a singular item. In many respects, creatively, from a management point of view, their view of the world and what wrestling should be versus what it was at the moment, um, and I'm sure that Jesse's big contract, which was something that I'm sure Bill Watts hated, sure, and as a result, so did Jim, you know. And it's unfortunate that Jim carried with him, and I'm I'm glad that Jim recognizes it now. That's uh that's called growth, but um yeah, at the time there was a lot of resentment. Uh, of, of Jesse Ventura from bill and, 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 and Jim
0: on this match, uh, this opening match in particular Meltzer wrote, Pillman was all action with some great moves and some missed spots. Steamboat worked well, but wasn't spectacular. Liger was nowhere near his usual level, but probably wasn't allowed to be anyway and did no mind blowing flying moves, but he's so talented that he was still the third best performer on the show and Koloff didn't ruin the match, but he was pretty bad. And it is a little weird that Anderson and Eaton, not on this show. I mean, not working a tag match on this show. Uh, Steiner brothers, not working a tag match on this show, but Koloff and steamboat are, I, I skip this. We should go back to this. The show has 8,000 fans there. Only half of them paid though. So roughly 4,000 paid a $45,000 gate. It's worth mentioning again. This is a great American bash on pay-per-view and we have a $45,000 gate. It's crazy. Next up.
1: And a a pay-per-view that only netted WCW about $600,000. Unbelievable. You and I could do a YouTube show and probably do that. (laughs) Uh
0: We, uh, we should mention that the next match happens after the Steiner brothers do a promo and Scott Steiner actually shows off a decent little job here. I mean, I hadn't seen this promo in a long time. I watched it again this week in this era. Scott Steiner was considered the weak link of the two. When it came to mic work, you're holding the, uh, the stick for the guys. I thought Scott did a passable job here, especially considering in this era, he was, well, not quite yet. The big, bad booty daddy.
1: I, I made the same note to myself. Surprisingly good interview from Scott Steiner at that time in his career. Cause he wasn't comfortable on the mic. He just wanted to get it done in the ring. All of his focus was in the ring. You know, he put a mic in front of him and it was like, okay, I know I have to do this. He didn't enjoy it, but he, he did a, a, a solid interview here.
0: Uh, Hashimoto is going to be stepping in to replace Nogami, who had suffered a legit eye injury. I did like that they showed him at the optometrist in Japan to explain that. That was kind of fun. Either way, it's a uh, Hase and Hashimoto beating the Freebirds nine minutes, 16 seconds. Uh Jimmy Garvin's going to take the pin. He's going to fall victim to a northern light suplex with a bridge. It was a remarkable uh man- maneuver to see, but Meltzer would describe this as quote. Total clash of styles, although Freebirds seem to clash with almost any style now. No heat, but I'm a Freebird, and that's my excuse. Tremendous little tongue in cheek here thing. I enjoyed the idea that we had a Japanese contingent. It's going to make the NWA and WCW seem like a bigger deal. Uh, and the Freebirds here, it doesn't seem like they're figured in. So they go down. Star in three quarters, sort of was what it was. But I do think you and I need some of those Michael P. S. Hayes jackets. We need jackets with fringe, Eric. We need to make that our thing. I have some. Oh Jesus.
1: I, I only wear them on special occasions, but I've got a couple really, really cool uh Michael P. S. Hayes
0: Freebird style jackets. My gosh. What'd you think of the match here?
1: Um, I really enjoyed watching Hiroshi Hase. I didn't, I wasn't impressed with Hashimoto. The match was flat. No, no, no emotion behind it. No story behind it. No, anything behind it and fairly boring as a result of it.
0: I, uh, I don't want to shit on it, but yeah, I kind of agree. Not great. Next up, we get something that feels weird. Bill Watts is going to discuss the NWA singles tournament. Uh, He's got the big gold belt here. Uh, They had just gotten it back this week from uh, Ric Flair. Of course, you may remember he took the big gold belt to the WWF with him. He said, Hey, I had to put up a deposit. They wound up paying him just over $28,000 to get it back. Uh, His WWF contract isn't set to expire until September of 93. So they know he's not coming back. Let's crown a new champion. And that's what they're alluding to. And they're even saying we're going to send this off to Japan. Uh, and he, and he hands it off here in the segment. But it's weird because not only do they show the belt and really put over the belt, but they've removed the Ric Flair nameplate and he holds it up and shows the camera and even says his name out loud. That feels like that goes against all conventional wisdom in wrestling, because even though he's not necessarily booming through the live crowd, they hear him say Ric Flair. And they get a little reaction. Flair's still over to this crowd, especially in Georgia. What'd you think of this segment where he's putting over the belt and the NWA world champion, even though the last time we saw it, it was on a guy in the WWF.
1: Yeah, yeah that was a disconnect. That was a bad choice on Bill's part. I, again, I understand the logic behind it, but Sometimes you just got to find a better way (laughs) to tell that story and to set it up. And sometimes confronting it head on is a better way, as opposed to trying to erase people and, you know, assume that the audience is dumb enough to forget who you're talking about.
0: Next up, we've got Dustin Rhodes teaming with Barry Windham to take on Rick Rude and Steve Austin. Rick Rude and Steve Austin are a bit of a makeshift team here, but they're part of the dangerous Alliance. I like that. I sort of think the same thing about Dustin Rhodes and Barry Windham. I don't know that I would have initially thought, Hey, these guys would go together like peanut butter and jelly, but I thought it gelled really well and liked their stuff. They get plenty of time here at 19 minutes and 16 seconds. I wanted to like it more than I did. It did feel like, uh, it got a little slow in spots. Meltzer would even say, uh, Wyndham was controlled on the mat to the point it got boring with constant rest holds. And he also made note that even though it started slow Rhodes did a cool tombstone reversal on rude, which did stand out. And this little note really stood out to me in Meltzer's write-up. Medusa was at ringside instead of Paulie Dangerously, who wasn't even booked on this show. He's kind of in the doghouse right now, but theoretically one had nothing to do with the other. Um, I don't know. This is a little weird for me. I love all the individual performers. I think the world of Medusa, but this one was just not maybe what I expected it to be. Maybe I just prefer all these guys as singles wrestlers. What say you?
1: I think probably both of those things, you know, we we all like them better as, as individual wrestlers. But I think the real reason, the underlying reason why this was flat as fuck is because there was no story. Yeah. There's just nothing there. It's a match. And unless, you know, Rick Rude was a huge draw, which he wasn't. No one in WCW was. Unless Austin would have been a huge draw, which he wasn't nobody in WCW was same with Dustin, same with Wyndham. Unless they, all of these guys were massive draws throwing a, a, tag match like this together with Medusa, with no explanation, no story, no support behind it, um, is just a match. It just, it, it, I, and, and then to kind of confine the action and limit the action to, to the extent that this pay-per-view did only exacerbated the fact that this just was a, this was filler. No reflection at all on the talent. Zero. They did the absolute best with what they could do and what they had to work with. It just wasn't enough.
0: Speaking of not enough, I can't believe what I'm about to say. Steve Williams and Terry Gordy beat Ricky Steamboat and Nikita Koloff in 21 minutes and 39 seconds, and the match got a dud rating. A dud rating can't believe a doc and gordy match with ricky steamboat we'll pretend nikita's not here but those three feel like sort of smart mark dirt sheet newsletter favorites whatever you want to call it a dud rating but i gotta tell you sitting at home i agree too damn long what'd you think
1: too damn long too damn
0: boring it was just the shits.
1: And I'll, if you go back, I, I challenge anybody to go back and watch the show. And, and again, I sound like I'm beating up on Dr. Steve Williams and, and, you know, Terry Gordy. I do not mean to do that. Ton of respect for them. But their time had come and gone. I mean, it, it just, it was what it was. Go back and watch this match and try to imagine it on any opening match of any television show today. And your head will explode. But yet, this is what Bill Watts thought the future of WCW needed to be mind blowing.
0: It, it is. Meltzer writes This was one of the dullest matches I've ever seen involving wrestlers of this caliber that were all trying hard and not blowing up or missing spots. The amateur stuff was fine to set the stage in the beginning, but it just lasted way too long. It looked legitimate, but wrestling promoters learned sometime in the 19th century that legitimate wrestling isn't marketable. And that's when someone got the idea for showy moves and started making money. When they finally got heat on steamboat, there was no crowd reaction. And this is the number two face in the promotion. Who's a master at getting crowd reaction. At some point during the match, Williams gave steamboat a move. I think it was a backbreaker and steamboat legit hurt his ribs. No word on how seriously Koloff made the hot tag at 14 minutes and 45 seconds, but he was then controlled on the mat until making a hot tag. to steamboat several minutes later. And Steamboat came in for the finish dud rating. It's just unbelievable. I don't think Ricky Steamboat ever had a dud rating in his life, but here it is. It's just a miss. We did miss something that was kind of fun though. Uh, we got a backstage interview with Harley race and Vader. You're holding the stick. I don't know why, man, but I really liked the pair of Vader and Harley race. what do you think of their promo?
1: I thought it was great. I, I thought I did a fantastic job. By the way, through this show, I, it, it is no wonder I was the premier C Squad announcer in all of professional wrestling at that time. Um, kidding here, just the, kidding.
0: Premier C Squad. It needs to be a T-shirt, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, really, I was the best
0: at being third. of the best <laughs> of C Squad
1: of the C Squad announcers at this time.
0: Uh, I'm the best third stringer there ever was. You hear me?
1: Uh, (laughs) No, but I think we should write, write this date and time down. Whenever, whenever you listen to the show, all of you, hundreds of thousands of fans around the world, because 83 weeks is a worldwide global phenomenon. Trust me when I tell you this, but write this date down. The minute you hear this, I agree 100% as vociferously as I can express it with Every comment that Dave Meltzer made about that match. Every one of them. The most clear, articulate, accurate representation of the match that we just talked about and an opinion and observation within the context of the time that the match took place in. You'll never hear me compliment, I don't think you will. At least you haven't heard me compliment Dave Meltzer up until this point, at least not to this extent, might've been the best commentary and the most accurate and honest commentary that Dave Meltzer will ever type.
0: Next up, we've got Rhodes and Wyndham getting a win over our Japanese competitors, Hashimoto and Hase 14 minutes, 55 seconds. Another really long match. Meltzer would say first half of the match was all scientific and not bad. Even though again, there are no crowd reactions. The Japanese did so many moves. U S fans aren't educated to yet. Actually, from a technical standpoint, this was a good match. Rhodes was punished until Hase missed the double knee drop off the top and Rhodes made the hot tag to Wyndham who went to the finish two stars. Rhodes and Wyndham, very talented performers here. I'm into it, but I can't help but think in hindsight, if they were wrestling the Steiners, maybe there would have been a bigger reaction, but it wasn't to be, what'd you think of this one?
1: Um it just bored me to tears. I, I and I felt bad for both Barry and Dustin um, watching this. Here's the other problem. I mean there was multiple challenges with the show and there's a lot of reasons why the crowd was deader than dead. Uh, I mean forget checking their pulse. most of them needed autopsies by the time the show took place. The fact that they were dead was already well established. Now we need to figure out exactly why they died. And, and one of the reasons why they died and this is where a tournament can really come back to bite you in the ass you've already seen these guys this right. is their second time out right right or third second time second time out you, you don't care anymore yeah you just don't care and for the I just felt for the talent so bad you know here's Dustin and, and Wyndham coming out on what the fifth match of the show uh, we're almost three quarters of the way through the show at this point. The crowd was lethargic and Dustin and Barry had already been out once and had a decent but not exciting match. Nothing that's going to make the audience go, wow, I can't wait to see Dustin and win in the next round. It was just a match. There was nothing special about their first time out. And now they have to come out again knowing That the audience really doesn't care to see you again. You got your 80% of the reaction that you're going to get is going to be the first time you come out. After that, you know, you're, you're holding on for dear life. And then to come out and have another boring match just had to be (laughs) excruciating for them. And again, it had nothing to do with the talent, nothing to do with the talent. But the way the format of the show was laid out, the idea behind this show, the booking of the show, the talent on the show, taking all the elements of the exciting, you know, physical presentation out of the show, turning the freaking lights down. I mean, all of it added up. And now on top of that, coming out multiple times, oh, my God, it is a recipe for mass murder of an audience. You just killed an entire audience.
0: Next up. Something I really enjoyed because we know what's coming. It's Ron Simmons discussing sting invader. He's talking to Tony Schiavone and Magnum TA who are both looking. Oh, so dapper in their tuxedos and Ron suited and booted too. And we know that when he's talking about sting invader, this is of particular importance because three weeks from now, Ron Simmons is going to become the world champion. I really enjoyed watching this part back, Eric, just knowing what we know now. I mean, this is clearly the foreshadowing and I'm sure the thinking that Bill Watts has said over the years, something along the lines of, uh, the NBA, the NFL, major league baseball, most of the, the athletics that happened in the United States, the premier athletes and stars were African-American. Why did we not have more African-American representation? from a championship caliber on American soil. I can get behind that. That's some sound logic and he selects Ron Simmons to be the guy. And this is really one of the first instances that it becomes very clear. Hey man, he's got big plans for him in the world title picture for him to do this promo about the, the world championship match that's coming up right after it's a good sign for all things, Ron Simmons in the future.
1: It really was. And Ron was such a class act and an incredible performer and a legit guy. All, he had all of the elements that I can understand why Bill Watts was feeling the way he did and why he had the plans he did. And i I'm 100% supportive, not just because Ron was – you know, one of the first African Americans that was going to get that kind of push at WCW on its face. That's obviously a good choice and a good decision, but what makes it even a better decision is because Ron had all of the tools. He wasn't getting that push because he was black. He was getting that push and happened to be African American. That was the way I felt about it. I didn't, I, I, I was excited about this for Ron, Ron was, of of all the talent on the WCW roster, to me, Ron Simmons, other than Sting, was one of the most charismatic, understated compared to Sting in many respects, but credible. Yes. I I mean, the shit that he did in the ring, his backstory, his look, his voice, his promos. By God, if there were ten things that you, ten boxes that you had to check in order to be qualified to get a push like this, Ron double checked every one of them. It was really a good time. It is it's good. Just, I mean, I mean, it was a good time in WCW.
0: It's fun to look at the way he was presented too. You know, we we did double down on his legitimate athletic background with him. I think he came in ninth in the Heisman voting, but he's a defensive player, uh, the only player at the time, and this is really rare. I mean, it happens a lot, in and professional athletics, but in college athletics, especially in that era, to have your jersey or your number retired is a big deal. And that happened for him at Florida state. So just a a tremendous deal. And it's also worth mentioning the context of that. Florida state was considered one of the prime time collegiate football organizations in the early nineties under Bobby Bowden. So it's not like this is some random school that maybe had their heyday once upon a time. No, he was the big deal at a big school that was really, really hot and winning national championships in that particular era. But also, too, the training montages, the way they showcased him. People always talk about the build for SummerSlam O2 when The Rock was sort of passing the torch to Brock Lesnar, and you would see these guys like running stadium stairs and things like that. They were doing that for Ron Simmons, which was a stark contrast to what's happening on the other channel. The other channels got Papa Shango and Berserker and Nails and Doink and some of this stuff. Whereas here, we've got a guy who is a legitimate collegiate athlete who's, you know, sort of staking his claim that he's coming for the world title. And I've always really struggled with this piece. And I don't know how much, how much we want to talk about this or get into the weeds on it, but we all know that Watts is going to get fired and we know what he's going to get fired for, but way before WCW, he drew major money and his biggest star he ever worked with was junkyard dog. And he had Ernie Ladd in his inner inner circle and ultimately it's his call to create. And I can't believe it took until 1992 for this to happen. The first black heavyweight champion. It's hard for me to reconcile all that. That's all the same guy, Eric.
1: I know it is confusing, isn't it? And, And I, I, I don't even know how to address it. You know, I don't want to speculate. I don't want to try to get inside of Bill Watts's head. I don't want to sound like an amateur sociologist or psychologist. So I'm just going to leave it alone other than to say what, what an ironic twist of fate, you know, Bill Watts's departure in WCW went on to become, it's just, it's weird.
0: You know, what's weird too, is, you know, you fast forward a few years and I know you weren't necessarily keeping up with it that much, but when Ron Simmons went to work with the WWF, he, he comes out as Farouk and has the silly helmet. But fast forward when he starts the nation of domination. He cuts what at the time was considered a heel promo because he's saying, Hey, black athletes don't get a chance and blah, blah, blah. And professional wrestling. Where's the black champions around here? Things like that. And Ron had it right. You know, it was not a heel promo. I mean, these days it would be a babyface promo and it's just, it's so cool to see that, you know, Ron was sort of the torchbearer for WCW. And then, you know, with that whole nation of domination thing, especially in hindsight with, you see, you know, what it did for guys like Godfather who was really struggling as comma at the time. And it made D and we know what it did for the rock. I mean, it totally turned him around and Ron was in the middle of all of that. And I just think going back and watching this and really thinking about how important this was at the time, I think Ron Simmons legacy in wrestling has maybe not been as celebrated as it should have been. Let's
1: change that right here for everybody that's listening to this show right now. Go back and, and, and watch this promo. Go back and watch some Ron Simmons matches and let us know if you agree with everything Conrad just said, which I do, by the way. I fully support it. I love that observation, Conrad. But I think I think Ron does deserve a lot more credit for for really being on the cutting edge uh, in, in this form of entertainment than he gets.
0: I mean, you really think about – and I know we're getting sidebarred on Ron Simmons – But look at all the great success he had with doom. I mean, they had some tremendous matches with the Steiners and the nasty boys and all that, and then he's going to go on to have this great singles run and become world champion. Then he does all the really cool stuff with nation of domination, even headlining against the undertaker for the world title a few times. But then he does the whole APA thing. It's like, man, this guy, you know, we always talk about, man, look at how Chris Jericho has reinvented himself. Well, on some level, did Ron Simmons not do that a long time ago? And not taking anything away from Jericho, you get what I'm saying. But Ron Simmons was one of those guys who was like, "Hey, this is what we're doing now," and 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 he succeeded at every step.
1: Every step, he could deliver. Well, and and that just says everything about that list of 10 boxes that Ron is able to check. When you have that much talent, you become very versatile and you know how to portray the character that you're asked to portray and make it believable in the process. And that's what I think the key to Ron was, is everything that he said, every word that he uttered in a mic, you believed it. Everything that he did in the ring, you believed it. Now it's just a matter of coming up with the right story. And and Rod was able to execute just about every opportunity that he was giving exceedingly well.
0: Let's uh let's talk about the the best thing on this entire show. And to me, it's not even close. It's Sting and Vader. We've talked about this feud a lot. Uh it was one of the, the hallmarks of this era of WCW. Certainly one of the bright spots. I think Vader would say one of his best opponents was Sting, and I think Sting would say the same of Vader. They get plenty of time here, 17 minutes and 17 seconds, four stars. Meltzer would say it's a hot match all the way. And considering what we had seen where it felt like at different times, the fans were sitting on their hands. That was not the case here. They're ready for this. It's a four-star match. And when it's all said and done, Vader is your champ. What'd you think? Here was
1: my other the note that I made to myself and it was kind of a snarky, smart ass note, but. I would like to think if, – if, if I go back and watch his pay-per-view and we've already you know – we've beaten up on Bill Watts enough and tried to understand what his thought process might have been and, and along the way giving him some credit for some of it. But if, if we wanted to put Bill Watts in the best possible light that we could, we would – we'd be saying right now that Bill Watts booked this horseshit pay-per-view. And built and, and had all of those boring, non exciting matches. Again, no fault of the talent. It was what it was. It was the booking, not the talent. But he would have formatted this show along with Jim Ross. Sorry, Jim. It is what it is. Um, to do nothing but set up Sting Invader. That show, we'd been sitting for probably two and a half hours yeah. at this point. Yeah. Maybe two hours and 20 minutes before this match started somewhere in that area. And we have been bored stiff since after the four, the opening match. Only to have Sting and Vader put on a fucking clinic. Yes. It was so good. This match was so good the audience for the first time all night, really other than the Pavlovian. Okay, here's the start of the show. Let's all get excited. Other than the first part of the show, everything else, fans were on their hands. I mean, they were going to sleep sitting up until this match. And this match blew the roof off 8,000 people to the extent that 8,000 people can half of them were probably asleep by that time. But man, the reaction was outstanding. The match itself You know, I encourage people, please, please, please go back and watch this match. If you're a Sting fan, if you want to see one of, not the only reason, but one of the important reasons that Sting went on to become the major star he was, is this match. If you go to 2 hours, 11 minutes, and 35 seconds— and watch the next four or five seconds of this match in the in the sequence of things that took place. When Sting attempted, you know, a a belly to back suplex. And, oh, he's trying it on a 400 pound Vader, right? He couldn't quite get it, and he took an elbow shot to the head, and he went around and boom, and he tried it again. Who would do that? Sting would do that, and this time he got it. I mean, the crowd reaction was fucking phenomenal. And then about two, two hours, 13 minutes and 18 seconds, obviously Vader's making his comeback. You know, he executed some kind of a, a a move. I don't recall what it was where sting landed on his head, presumably was dazed and confused. And as Jim Ross would speculate later on may have had a concussion at the time sting being the baby face that he was, he was at a distant, he was in the underdog because Vader was so much bigger. The story was classic David and Goliath. Only only the fans really, really loved David because he was so exciting and brought so much passion and energy to the match. And, then, and, and David, in this case, Sting gets up. He staggers around so believably well, so well executed. Sting was selling, you know, trying to get to his feet. And he's barely, he's wobbling. He sees Vader standing in front of him. He reaches out and he throws a punch out of desperation. Vader let that punch come within about a half an inch or an inch. Timing was impeccable. Vader just backed away from that punch. I mean, this looked like a scene out of a movie sequence. It would have taken a week to shoot. It was so well done. And Stingray, he reaches back, he throws another punch. He threw everything he had into that punch. And he ends up just out of sheer exhaustion. And because of the head injury, the presumed head injury, goes down and hits the mat. That, four or five seconds sequence that I just described to me was one of those moments. I've talked about this many times over the years. If you can, you've got a two and a half hour show. If out a two and a half hours, you can do something that the audience believes is real and they care about it. Right. It's not just enough to do a great, you know, arm bar. And the audience goes, "Ah, it looks like that could hurt. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about presenting the passion and the emotion and executing the physicality that supports that story and do it in such a believable way. If you could, out of a two and a half hour show, if you give me three minutes of something I believe, you own me. I'm coming back. I'll give you my money again. And this was that two or three minute sequence. I mean, the sequence I just gave you was only four or five seconds, but the body of this match, the 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 body of the match where this took place, was probably some of the best three minutes of wrestling I'd
0: seen in a long,
1: long time to this
0: day. Really, really, really well done. Go out of your way to see it. If there's one thing on this show you should watch, well, two. Watch the Ron Simmons promo right before this, and then watch this match. Really tremendous. Uh, we should push that. Uh, Sting kicks out of the first pin attempt. He's acting woozy, swings wildly, and then Vader uses the powerbomb finish. Uh, and it is a devastating looking match. I mean, these guys, man, they were just giving it all. all, you know bad. what,
1: uh, you know what, Conrad, I'm sorry to cut you off. I am I, sure you've heard this. You've, you've talked to so many people and you, you understand the product and you're becoming an historian in your own right, given the thousands of hours of podcasts that you do with all of us, but you know, you've probably heard guys make statements like, well, you know, you, you don't have to win a match to get yourself over. You can lose a match and get yourself over. And that's a true statement. Now, it's a very rare occasion, but it's a very true statement. And this is why I said... If I wanted to give Bill Watts all the credit in the world, I would say he threw away the rest of the card knowing he was going to deliver something so special that even though Vader was going to get over, Sting was going to be more over than he ever had been after this match. That's the way I felt about it.
0: Yeah. It's, it's uh what's the old saying? Uh, I didn't, he didn't go over. He got over. So yeah, yeah. Vader went over, but Sting got over. Really tremendous. And it's weird to look back at this in hindsight because I think of Vader, and that's still to come, but I think of Vader as being this dominant world champion. And really, he's essentially a transitional champion here. We're going to take the belt off of Sting, and three weeks later, we're going to put it on Ron Simmons. The buffer is Vader. And we know that Vader's going to have a series of devastating matches still to come with Cactus Jack and Ron Simmons, and of course, Sting. So. There's more there for Vader in the future, but at least in this moment, he's essentially a transitional champion of sorts. Uh, let's get to the main event. Doc and Gordy, Rhodes and Wyndham, 21 minutes and one second. And when it's all said and done, Doc and Gordy win. They are now not just your WCW world champs, which they won at a house show on July 5th from the Steiners. Now they're the NWA tag champs as well. The Steiners come out at the beginning of the match, only to be sent to the back by Ole Anderson and Doug Dillinger. Ole is the special guest referee, and he's sort of the special referee for all of WCW. That's one of the things that Watts has implemented here. Uh they do a 20-minute a sudden death where they pick things up with a few near falls before Williams pins Rhodes after a clothesline. And Rhodes like cut a flip when he did it. It gets three-quarters of a star. It's not the way you want to finish a pay-per-view considering the last match. Uh, it feels, you know, I hate to say this, but it feels like the NWA thing. It feels like a waste of time. Almost the fans were so hot for sting invader. And, and then this is like a balloon where they just let the air out. Like when, when the final count comes one, two, three, there's a mild smattering of applause, but it just feels like a lot of other people were like, okay, this is over. We can leave now. I mean, almost as if they were in court, not a wrestling show, but you compare that to the crowd that watched the match before. And, and it is night and day.
1: What, it, I mean, it, it, as you and I were talking about, you don't have to, you don't have to go over to get over and, and how sing, although he lost to Vader, you know, he was probably more over than he was before the bell rang. I firmly believe that. Um, this match was the exact opposite of that. You know, and if, if, you know, for so many, and to this day, you know, in social media, you know how social media is, you know, people are always critical and always want to feel like they could have done things better than you did. Or if they were in charge, they would have done things differently. Why didn't you give this guy more of a push? Like giving somebody a push in and of itself is is the factor in if someone gets over or not. And here's a an perfect illustration of why I've always subscribed to the theory that that's bullshit. Here are two guys, Dr. S. Steve Williams, Terry Bam Bam Gordy, no disrespect at all. Nobody gave two shits about this team. Not their fault. No story. Hadn't been around. Hadn't built them up. And they didn't really deliver the kind of match that the audience wanted in that era yes they were tough guys yeah i know dr death steve williams may have been the toughest son of a bitch on the planet for a minute or 10 or 20 it doesn't matter because that doesn't matter to the audience they don't care how tough you were in college they really really don't even if bill watts did and even if jim ross did the audience did not and will never will it's what you deliver in the ring, and this match delivered absolutely nothing in the ring. Not only did it deliver absolutely nothing, but to add some insult to the injury that Bill Watts was trying to prescribe as the solution for WCW going on into the future, Dr. Death, Steve Williams, after 21 minutes and almost one second a boring me to tears in this match, beats Dustin Rhodes. His finish was a clothesline. Finish was a clothesline. Ugh. I mean, there were, I mentioned this at the beginning of the show. Go back and watch this match. This is the main event. Yeah. The most, the, the entire format should have been built to create anticipation for this one crowning match at the end of a show. Not that I haven't, you know, produced a couple stinkers myself. I have. We all have. But, those of us that have actually produced shows. But this match was so bad. There's a guy sitting hard camera. He's wearing a white sweatshirt. You can't oh, yeah. miss him. Yep. Nobody at home could have possibly missed him. Nope. He's sitting there with his arms folded like he's waiting for the cop to finish writing the ticket. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anything like it in my life. This, and now you've got Terry Gordy and Bam Bam Bigelow, who, you know, tag team champions, NWA and WCW. This was the epitome of you can push someone all you want. If the if the audience, if it's not what the audience wants, I, it doesn't matter. It's not the push. It's the people in the push and the story that supports the people in the push. That's what matters. You can put straps on people, titles, championships, whatever you want to call them. You can drape people in gold. It doesn't mean the audience cares. It just doesn't. And this was an example.
0: We should mention you. Uh, mistakenly referred to him as bam, bam, Bigelow, Terry, bam, bam, Gordy, but I know
1: I'm, sorry. About, I'm sorry, too too much coffee. Thank you for picking that
0: up. Listen, this was, uh, a talent loaded show, tons of talent, and there are some interesting ideas, but it does feel like a different WCW. I mean, it is the same and that sting is still there running roughshod, but they're trying some new things. Uh, one of the things that I missed about this show from the WCW or the herd era, if you will, was the ramp. Um, I don't even know that I noticed that the ramp wasn't there until Vader came out and did his little helmet entrance thing with the ramp in the ring rather than, I mean, with the mask in the ring rather than on the ramp, but you know, herd is trying to hit the, or Watts I'll get it. Right. He's trying to hit the reset button and he's done it, but I don't know how successful it's been so far with the occasional bright spots of, you know, Sting, Vader, Ron Simmons.
1: No, I mean, I don't think we have to beat it up any more than we already have. Um, this is the third time out of the evening for Dustin Rhodes and Barry Wyndham. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine? I'd like to talk to Dustin about this time, what this felt like, because Dustin was still pretty young, very young in his career at this point. But to come out for the, very, for the third time in the evening and having to follow the Sting Vader match. Yeah. Can you imagine any more um overwhelmingly yeah. depressing feeling than to have to be last following the sting vader match after you've been out twice already as oh it, my god
0: as if that's not enough too they card out the babyface team that everybody loves like the steiners are over over and they bring them out right at the beginning of the match and then send them to the back so it's like yeah, oh and, my, oh my and god, and achieved absolutely nothing not just that it had to piss everybody off like The idea being, okay, another Wyndham Rhodes match, not shitting on them, very capable performers, but then here come the Steiners. You're like, oh my God, the Steiners are here. Oh, they've got to go back. So it's just Wyndham and Rhodes again, who we've already seen two other times. We're going to see him a third time. It was a bad tactical error in my opinion, to bring him out and show him. It's almost akin to in a more modern era where the fans really want Daniel Bryan, but instead they get Roman reigns. Had we not brought Daniel Bryan back for that Royal rumble. And instead just had Roman win, we maybe wouldn't have teased the fans of, Hey, maybe you're going to get what you really want. Daniel Bryan, but because he was in the match, they wanted him to win. And when he didn't man, they shit all over Roman. And I think it's sort of the same thing here where it's, they really wanted the Steiners and instead they got teams. They'd already seen three other times.
1: I didn't think about it from that perspective, but that's probably why that guy in the white sweatshirt that was sitting there with his arms folded. He wasn't bored. He was pissed.
0: Well, it's just like, well, okay, we're going to see these guys again. And listen, we've beat this up a uh, long form. Go watch the pay-per-view actually just skip to the Ron Simmons thing and the sting Vader. And if you want to just for shits and giggles, go to the very end, uh, and take a look and see what you think, uh, of the anticlimactic finish, by the way, Jesse Ventura did make comments about how the crowd was not happening. was not happy here in Albany, Georgia. Uh, and, and Jesse, his, his get up here. How would you describe what he's wearing? Yeah.
1: I don't know. You know, I watched the show this morning and obviously saw, um, Jesse, but I didn't pay attention to it.
0: Describe it to me. It's, it's a white suit that looks like someone took glitter and paint and just splattered it all over it. And standing next to Jr. It is a stark contrast. He looks, I mean, I'll be honest when, when I was watching it this morning with Megan, I said, Hey, look at what the fuck Ventura is wearing. Look at this goof. And she says, he looks like Jay-Z, of course, our friend of the show, Jay-Z Flair, and I posted it to our group chat and everyone died and thought it was hilarious. He looks absolutely ridiculous, but uh, it was a fun show to go back and revisit. And it was fun for us to get some context to a different time of WCW where you were there, uh, but you're seeing some of the missteps that management's making. We know when you get your hands on the thing in short order, things are going to start to look a little different, but next week we're going to do something That nobody ever thought would happen. We're going to talk about your first day at work in WWE last year. It's the raw reunion from 2019. Uh, this was a very special show. They brought out all the big guns, stone cold, Steve Austin's here. And they did like a little bit of a documentary about this. And there's even footage of you meeting Pat Patterson out in front of the ramp. And he asked something and he said, I don't know. It's my first day here. It's my first day at work. The, the gist was, how are you liking being back or something like that? And we're going to have you sort of walk us through that whole process. What a day behind the scenes looked like your first day at work. What should we expect next week, Eric?
1: You know, I, I, honesty, you know, I'm, I'm going to be as honest as I can about my feelings and my observations at the time I was, I was very overwhelmed, you know, in a lot of ways, it was a massive transition for my wife and I to just pack up all of our shit in Beverly Hillbilly our away from Cody Wyoming in a pickup truck and a 4 by 8 foot U-Haul trailer drive across cross country and show up at corporate headquarters in WWE and be dropped right into the middle of a whole new world from the one that I'd been living in for nearly, you know, 15 years so I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm going to probably go back and watch that show and, uh, refresh my memory a little bit, and hopefully you can play a clip or two for me and we can kind of add some context that maybe no one's ever heard before.
0: We're going to wrap up the month on July 27th with hashtag ask Eric anything. If you've got questions about the raw debut, go find us on Twitter at 83 weeks and a week from now, check us out at 83 weeks and look for questions where you can pick Eric's brain and ask anything you want. As a reminder, you would have gotten this show early and ad free by several days if you would have joined us over at adfreeshows.com. Where, Eric, we've had the most feedback we've ever had for a bonus show. We called it Eric Fires Back. And I'm proud to announce that that will also be our July bonus show. People are really digging this, Eric. Are they not?
1: They sure are. I don't think I've ever had this much feedback from anything I've ever done since you and I have been working together, and it, it, it made, I'm, a, I'm getting a little nervous about doing the second show, but I'm looking forward to it.
0: It's going to be fun. We've got your old pal Greg there, and so much more. You don't want to miss it. Join us on all the fun over at AdFreeShows.com. Don't forget to pick up your Glizzy King shirt over at EricBischoff.com. He is at eBischoff on Twitter. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week, right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Hey, Keith, um, I wanted to have a quick talk with you about your experience with Save with Conrad. Is it
1: okay if I record it for the podcast?
0: Yeah, that's fine. Awesome. Awesome. I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it.
1: First off, what made you come to Save with Conrad? I was to the oh, point I had two mortgages and... I was like, man, I I really don't like having to write two checks every single month. Mm So I was was really looking to consolidate and make it into one and then save some money on top of it. So I pretty much maxed out a credit card and I was like, well, I'm not going to get anywhere only making basically minimum payments. So I was like, if I refinance, I'll be able to pay off that credit card. So that really was what motivated me to do it. How was it working with Jimmy and the team? He was awesome to deal with i'd recommend him to anybody um
0: is there anything through this experience for you that we could possibly change to make it smoother really i think um you guys did a really good job um i really don't have any complaints honestly how much money was save Save with conrad able to save you through this whole thing i would say around twenty
1: thousand dollars when it comes down to it um it could be more than that, but I'm just a rough estimate, probably about 20000 Now, if you could tell it, tell our podcast anything to encourage
0: them about, say, with Conrad, what would you tell them? In Conrad we trust, man. <laughs> <laughs> that I love it. I love it. So what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com.
1: NMLS number 65084 Equal Housing Lenders.